What's up, all of our Liberty-loving friends? This is another fantastic episode of Liberty and Night with Nate and Charlie on the Free Talk Live network. And uh, my co-host here, Charles Thompson, well, he's not here today. He's in the Bahamas right now, about to play a WSOP tournament. We, uh, we wish him well. I hope, I hope it goes well for him. He's got some great weather down there, I'm sure. He's been rubbing it in our faces, but I love cold weather. I wish it would get a little bit colder. I like, you know, just having the fire going in the house. I get to build a fire with my own hands. It's got to be pretty cold for that to happen, though. Well, it's, uh, it's Monday, and uh, some stuff happened over the weekend, I'm sure. I'm not exactly sure what it is, so we got some economic stuff to talk about. Hope everyone's excited about that. I'm hanging out right now with the Fed Haters Club who joined up by going to joingml.com. That's joingml.com. For as little as $7 a month, you can hang out with me or Charlie or me and Charlie every single day of the week when we want to, which is, which is almost every single day of the week. Okay. All right. Let's get into this first thing. I saw this article, a screenshot of this article headline going around making the rounds on the Liberty Twitter this weekend. And uh, it's, it's called, it's from the Atlantic, it's called Inflation is Your Fault. And that is one that I just saw posted around everywhere. And it's from, it's from the Atlantic. They're pretty good at uh, coming up with these attention-grabbing headlines. A lot of times all you see are their headlines. There's, they're the ones that had that uh, Let's Declare a Pandemic Amnesty uh, article headline, of course, and so they're great at doing this. This one's by Annie Lowry. So, of course, as we're dealing with inflation still, which is just a little over 3%, it's, it's no 9.1%, but it's still uh, 50% higher than what the Fed wants it to be at our 2% target rate. So we're all still dealing with that. And uh, Annie over here at the Atlantic has got an idea, and she's, she's found the, the problem and the solution to the problem, I guess, but... Who are you going to blame for this inflation? Well, it's you. It's you, dear listener, listening right now. Uh, the inflation that we have, it's not the money printing. It's not the out-of-control spending by Congress. It's, it's nothing like that. It's not, the, it's not shutting down people's jobs during the pandemic and giving them money, unemployment, uh, instead of allowing them to produce things for the economy. It's, it's your fault that we have this inflation right now. Could be a dumb bleep. Submission for Dumb Leap of the Week, I'm sure, but I wanted to talk about it today since the article just came out over the weekend. The uh, the byline here, or whatever it's called, what do you call the subheadline? If people are so mad about high prices, why do they keep buying so many expensive things? So you might think, well, because when I first saw this, I was like, okay, she's got a little point. Like there's a point. We're still buying a lot of things. Consumers are out there spending at record amounts and you see some clothing that you want, even though it's uh, pricier than you, than you uh, used to pay for it. You're still buying that or you go out to, um, you go to McDonald's and you're paying higher prices or you go to Panera. My wife's been on a Panera kick lately and we've been going there and holy crap, it's, you might as well be going to a normal sit-down restaurant. It's so expensive to go eat at a place like Panera. And uh, so you might think, well, if I've really got a problem with those prices, then I just, I wouldn't pay that price. Therefore, like there's a market argument here. There's a market argument here to be made where she has somewhat of a correct point for a moment 
that since I'm deciding to still pay that much for the food or I'm deciding to still pay that much for the clothing, that I have agreed that this is a fair market price. Otherwise, I wouldn't pay for it. But what about the actual inflation itself? Like, is that really our fault that those prices went up to where they are? In the market auction theory, it can be. With the inflation rate number, though, it's a little bit different because the things I just mentioned, like one thing for sure, clothing, uh, that's a very, very small portion of the inflation number that we have. Uh, In this article, she mentions uh, cruise vacations, things like that, another very small portion of the inflation number. Uh, but let's let's read a little bit of the article and uh, and see what we got here. And like T-Dub saying, does the market agree to inflation? Like, do, do I really agree to it? To an extent you do, if you buy things that you don't actually need or that you could, like, if I could make food at home for cheaper, of course, that comes with, a, with its own costs as well. Uh, did I need to buy the new clothing that I bought? Uh, could I have said that's too expensive? I'm just going to wear the clothing that I have right now. Like for those things, you're kind of agreeing that the higher price is worth it for you to pay those. But then when it comes to to housing and food in general, like even food at the grocery stores, uh, you got to eat something. And so you're going to pay whatever the higher price or starve, right? Uh, so you don't have a, a lot of say-so in the inflation in those numbers. So there, there's kind of a balance there to it, I think. Uh, she says, you would think with prices as high as they are that Americans would have tempered their enthusiasm for shopping as of late, that they would have pulled back spending on luxury items, that they would have sought out budget and basic options, bought smaller packages, fewer things. Now, she mentions luxury items once again, and those are going up a lot, but those are also a very, very small portion of the inflation number. We'll look at some of that later on. This is not what's happened. Consumer spending rose 0.2% after accounting for the higher prices in October, the most recent month uh, that we have data for. Online shopping jumped 7.8% over the Thanksgiving weekend, more than analysts had anticipated. The sales of new cars, dishwashers, cruise vacations, jewelry, all things people tend to give up when they are watching their budget remain strong. Consultants keep anticipating a recession precipitated by the death of the consumer. Thus far, the consumer is staying alive. We'll talk about how the consumer is staying alive right now. People hate inflation, just not enough to spend less. This is one of the central tensions of today's economy in which things are going great, yet everyone is miserable. I think if everything was going great, people wouldn't really be miserable all the time, but um, I'm not sure. And in some ways, Americans have nobody to blame but themselves. So, I understand somewhat what she's saying, but now she's about to explain how we have other people to blame other than ourselves, unless you just look at the fact that we keep voting in terrible politicians that make terrible decisions all the time. Then you could say we could blame ourselves. But three years ago, the pandemic gnarled supply chains around the world. The, the government's response to the pandemic, gnarled supply chains around the, the world, I said that, not her, leading the shortages of many consumer goods. At the same time, the American government transferred roughly $1.8 trillion to households in the form of generous unemployment insurance benefits, an amped up child tax credit, stimulus checks, and the delayed or forgiven student loan payments. Less supply, more demand, it was a recipe for higher costs. 
She's right about that on the economic basis. We put a bunch of money in the people's hands. They weren't producing goods in the economy. And so there was a lower supply, but there was still the same demand or better demand when you look at the fact that some of the, some of the bills that people were paying went away for, for some time, like rent in some places or your student loans uh, went away for quite some time. And so there was less supply and much more demand. Of course, that was going to create inflation. We were talking about that really early on. And of course, uh, some people, some economists thought that somehow this was not going to create inflation, which is weird. More recently, prices have been driven up, if more slowly, by the strong, strong labor market. The unemployment rate is as low as it ever gets and has been for some time with labor shortages in a number of sectors, air traffic control, education, retail, trucking, police and public safety, nursing, plumbing and electric. The tight labor market has forced employers to pay workers more, boosting wages, particularly at the lower end of the income spectrum. Interestingly enough, she pinpoints that the strong labor market is leading to higher pay for workers and is leading to higher costs, prices being driven up by higher pay for the workers, which I thought wasn't a real thing anyway. Real hourly earnings for workers in the 10th percentile of wage distribution went up more than 8% in the past three and a half years. So that's people at the lower end of the spectrum. Uh, let's go on to a sticker shock is real. And in surveys, people say they are trading down because of cost pressures. But in fact, they are spending more than they ever have. Even after accounting for higher prices, they're spending not just on the necessities, but on fun stuff. Amusement parks, Uber Eats. People just have a lot of money on hand. More broadly, they seem to be less likely to change their purchasing habits in respect to price shifts, even when budgets are leaner. A raft of recent studies have found that American consumers have become less price sensitive in recent decades. Households are using fewer coupons. People are spending less time mulling over what to buy when they're shopping. Uh, let's see if anything else in here is uh, important enough to talk about. Uh, at the end, she says people want to blame Joe Biden for their bills. They want to accuse stores of gouging them. Though evidence for greedflation is scant, once again, she puts in there that there's not much evidence for the idea that price gouging is leading to higher inflation. The, the, the article's dumb and the overall idea, especially the headline, is really dumb, which is what grabs people's attention. But another, she mentions that higher wages are leading to inflation and that there's not much evidence that price gouging is leading to inflation. Two actual not dumb things inside of this article. So it's, it's I, I don't want to go against the grain too hard here, but it's not as dumb as it could have been. The strange truth is that most people really are in, more, in a more comfortable position, even if they're not happy about it. It's not like a weak economy, stagnant wages, crummy consumer spending, and cheaper stuff would be better uh, after all. So I wanted to talk about one thing. How is the consumer so strong? She says, well, consumers are clearly doing okay. They're still spending. When you look at credit cards and other revolving plans from all these commercial banks, uh, you've got, let's see, April 2021, $738 billion sitting in uh, revolving accounts. In November 2023, uh, you've got a little over a trillion sitting in these revolving accounts. So a pretty big jump right there of uh, over 200 and I think if I do some quick math, like 280 billion uh, if you 
let me see, uh, carry the one, uh, something like that. Over $200 billion added on to revolving credit cards. That's uh, just added on to people's credit cards. Now, that doesn't mean that they're behind on their payments or that they can't make their payments or that they're going to be paying the 20% interest rate on everything. I've got a lot of money on credit cards monthly, but that's just because there's a lot of cards with good points out there. So I use credit cards to buy everything and get the points for it. I'm going to Peru in May and that, that flights for both my wife and I were, were purchased on, on points. And so using credit cards, and that's added to this figure, and it doesn't mean that I'm behind on the payments or anything like that. Uh, so when you look at before the pandemic, you had $850 billion. Then it dipped down to seven thirty eight, Then it went up to over a trillion. And so a lot of it has been coming in the form of credit cards. When you look at the uh, yearly changes, year-over-year changes, you see there's been a really big jump percentage-wise and changes from, uh, it's called change from a year ago, so your year-over-year change in the revolving credit balances. And there's been a really big jump uh, since the end of the pandemic or since the economy reopened where a lot of people have been putting a lot of money on on credit lately. And if those balances get too big, if they can't make the payments, we could be in for a, a really big drop in consumer purchasing power assuming that a lot more people are using credit cards right now. And so that's one way that the consumer is pretty strong. Now, when she says inflation is your fault, we are in this situation, not, you know, the people on this podcast, you could say not through any fault of our own because we don't really vote for the people who push these uh, specific policies that get us into the situation. Uh, But a lot of people vote for people who push these policies. So maybe it is their fault for putting people in power that make these decisions. This chart right here is the M2 money supply, which is up by 34% uh, since the pandemic. And so, of course, throwing all that money out into the economy and the GDP has not raised that much. So you got more money chasing a lower amount of goods. It's more, more goods, but it didn't grow by 34% over this amount of time. You also look at the, uh, the unemployment rate spiked up to 14.5% during the economy. So people aren't producing goods at this time. They're not working, but they kept getting money from the government to go out there and purchase goods. And it's gone back down now. It's sitting at 3.9% right now. But those are people who were getting unemployment checks. We got the STEMI checks. We got the child tax credits, stuff like that. And all that money was chasing fewer goods, which created the crazy inflation that we had in the middle of uh, last year, I think is when it peaked. And so it's not just our fault. You can say maybe people are making some bad decisions or deciding to go ahead and buy things right now. Sometimes when you're in a high inflationary environment, as Milton Friedman would say, the only solution to high inflation is high living. So you might as well take that cruise right now because guess what? It's going to be a lot more expensive next year and it's going to be a lot more expensive the year after that. You might as well buy that new hoodie right now because it's going to be a lot more expensive next year if you keep waiting. So why why wait when the price of things keeps going up all the time? That's a problem that you get into when you have high inflation. And so you can't just blame it on the people who are making some decisions Based on that, you know, my wife and I bought new furniture for the house. And one of the reasons that we decided to pull the trigger on it was the price just kept going up. And so what 
don't want to spend three or four thousand dollars on some couches right now, or do I want to spend four or five thousand dollars on some couches at the end of next year? So, yeah, hey, Dan's got a good point. You might as well sign up to be a real libertarian right now. I think we just saw. 50 a 50 percent inflation spike in the price of being a real libertarian in the fed haters club and that could just keep going up and up you know you might as well do it right now because it's just going to go up even more you're waiting for the price to come down i'm sorry to tell you it's not going to come down okay that's because i have a monopoly on people being a real libertarian in the fed haters club okay so that article, you know, it, it talks about stuff being your fault and then it mentions cruises and it, and it mentions luxury items and it mentions jewelry. One really important thing to mention here is that those are all very small portions of the inflation number. If you were to look at all items less food, you have 86% weight on those. So food being 14%, all items less shelter. Those are 65% of the weight, meaning Shelter is 35% of the weight and shelter keeps going up. I think there was still 6 or 7% inflation, 6.7% uh, inflation uh, year over year uh, for shelter costs. And that's roughly 35% of the inflation number. That's where a lot of this is coming from. You have to have food and you got to have shelter. If you don't have a car, you need to get a car. And cars, even used cars, got really expensive there for a while. They've, they've come down quite a bit. Uh, but some of these things are things that you have to have. And in fact, the things that you have to have are a much bigger weight on the inflation number than a bunch of those luxury items are. One of the things she mentioned was like, was like 0.1% of the number. And that's one of the big points she made. It has like no bearing on the number that we have right now. Uh, that we use when we're talking about it. So anyhow, that's the point on inflation. Is it your fault? Uh, I would place it more on the government, on the Fed, easily on the government and the Fed, and not so much all of the people who are just having to deal with the world that we live in and might just be trying to get things before they get even more expensive in the near future. Uh, one of the things I wanted to mention, we, we mentioned this tweet already a couple days next week. But I was looking at the CPI number. You know Joe Biden's tweet. He says, let me be clear that any corporation that hasn't brought their prices back down, even as inflation has come down, it's time to stop the price gouging. See, when we look at the year-over-year inflation number and we see, well, it was 9.1 and right now it's 3 or 3.2 or whatever the actual number is right now, that tricks a lot of people into thinking that inflation came down by 65%. And the president and a lot of other people on the left have been doing as good a job as they can trying to convince people that that's actually what that means. And it works if you're someone who never pays attention to this stuff. A better way of looking at it would be looking at the actual consumer price index, the actual CPI. Because right here on this chart, if you can see it, this red circle I've got right here, this is where inflation peaked at 9.1%. And if you were to listen to Joe Biden or any of the other talking heads on the left, they would say, well, inflation has come down so much. It's come down 65% since then. But you look at this consumer price index and the number has kept going up and up. In fact, since inflation peaked and inflation came down by 65% pre-2020, 
prices have still risen by another 4.3%, at least using our consumer price index, has at least gone up by another 4.3% since that time. Since inflation peaked, it has gone up another 4.3%. So looking at the actual consumer price index is a good way of visualizing what's happening with the prices. Yeah, they're still going up. Here's the peak right here. And guess what happens afterwards? It keeps going up. That's what we got right now. Oh, look at this, an advertisement live during the podcast. You guys ready for this? I'm pumped about it. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We're coming up on the holiday season, and honestly, I used to dread this part of the year. Seriously, did. Uh, it can be so stressful trying to find gifts, coordinate schedules. You guys ever try to schedule with your family during the holidays? Uh, plus, to me, it's always marked the passing of yet another year. And when I say that out loud, I can't believe that I used to look at that as a bad thing, the passing of another year. Not everyone gets that. But adding something new and positive can counteract some of those feelings. Therapy can be a bright spot amid all the stress, just like it was for me when I tried it. That's right. Doing therapy worked for me, and it can work for you, too. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Find your bright spot this season with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash GML today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash G-M-L. Look at this quote I got up here on the, uh, on the screen for this next segment. Here's a quote. I'm a millionaire. I'm a multimillionaire. I'm filthy rich. You know why I'm a multimillionaire? Because multimillions like what I do. Anyone in the group? Anyone in the group know who said that? I'll give you a second while I'm taking a drink. You know why I'm a multimillionaire? Because multimillions like what I do. <sighs> Michael Moore. That is a quote from Michael Moore. So, that's a great one. Really great quote. And uh, props to uh, Joe Norberg in his book, The Capitalist Manifesto. I heard him read that. I'm, I'm on my, it's a really great book, by the way. I've done it, uh, I've listened to it two times now, and on my third time through, and I'm taking notes as I'm listening to it now, so I can go and look up all the stories uh, that are in the book. And this is one of the quotes that I heard. And uh, I, I wrote down. All right, we'll be right back with more of this story on Liberty at Night. Hi, I'm Derek J. To me, an activist's calling is to actively work to advance a cause. The cause for which I work is personal freedom. I believe my life is best when I engage in voluntary interactions and self-government. I reject the idea that anyone else has a higher claim to my life or my body than I do. I see people who call themselves the government as a threat to my personal freedom. I realize you may feel differently, but my relationship with the people who call themselves the government is completely involuntary. If Starbucks used some of its money to drop bombs, I wouldn't shop there. So why would I support the American empire? The empire does not require my consent. Derek J's Victimless Crime Spree. You can order your copy of the Director's Cut DVD now at VictimlessCrimeSpree.com.
So let's talk about wealth inequality for a second. This is something looks weird. Um, Andrea Junker, we've seen this one before. The wealth of Elon Musk in 2012 was $2 billion, and 2023 is $245 billion. Jeff Bezos in 2012 was $18 billion, and in 2023 is $168 billion. Mark Zuckerberg in 2012 was $17 billion, and 2023 was $116 billion. The federal minimum wage in 2012 was seven twenty-five, dollars and in 2023, it's seven twenty-five. dollars Three words. Tax the rich. Now, this is not really part of the main conversation I want to have, but comparing those things to the federal minimum wage is an absolutely ridiculous thing to do. If you wanted to do anything, you would pick someone, you would pick a person, since you just named three people, and you would pick a person who was making the federal minimum wage in 2012 And then you would see what they're making in 2023. Like if you wanted to do even closer to an accurate comparison to these things, you wouldn't just look at a group of people and that is federal minimum wage earners, which is a very, very small portion of the people who work in our economy. But, but, uh, but whatever, that's not the main point right now. Here's another one from Robert Reich. Oligarchy is America's billionaires now being worth a record 5.2 trillion while the federal minimum wage has been stuck at seven twenty-five since two thousand nine, hello. A comment on this, which I included: the worshippers of billionaires need to remind themselves that not one single billionaire has ever worked for the wealth they have. Every, they add on here, just a super solid point: every undocumented worker works harder and provides more value to our nation than any of the billionaires. That we have out there. I don't know if you it's factually accurate that not a single billionaire has ever worked for the wealth that they have. And I don't know if it's a provable fact that every undocumented worker works harder and provides more value to our nation. If you provided more value to our nation, then you'd be a billionaire. Like the uh like the other people, okay? Like the billionaires. This was stemmed from a tweet thread I saw from Americans for Tax Fairness who said U.S. billionaires are now worth a record $5.2 trillion. America's billionaires are richer than ever before. But under current law, their $2.3 trillion wealth gain since the 2017 GOP tax scam will go largely untaxed. Here's why we need a billionaire income tax. I don't know why they decided to mention the 2017 Tax Cuts and, tax cuts and Jobs Act. Um, there's... I don't think a really big correlation between those things. I don't think that had anything to do with Tesla becoming profitable or anything like that. But anyhow, uh, billionaires are now worth a record $5.2 trillion, and that's supposed to make you really mad. One thing they don't mention in that first tweet is that the first number that they had, they were 547 billionaires, and now in 2023, there were 741 billionaires. And so there's almost 200 more billionaires or 40% more billionaires uh, than there were in the original calculation in 2017. And on here, it lists out all these super rich people, how much their wealth has grown since 2017. And of course, what you're supposed to gather from this is that we have to tax the rich, which, which should, should hopefully get you thinking, like, how would you tax that? because it's a wealth gain 
And for almost all of them, it's a wealth gain in their, in, in their company. It's what the company is actually valued at, and they just own a portion of the company. And it's not even money that they directly made from the economy for people buying their products and services. It's people in the stock market. It's the millions of people who have money in any type of retirement account that have decided that it's worth it to pay $248 for a share of Tesla or whatever it is for a share of Amazon or Microsoft or Meta these days. Like Those are the people that are driving the wealth. And so when you look at all the money that they have and say that you want to tax it, what you're actually saying is that somehow I take my money and I invest it in a retirement portfolio and I was wrong by giving it to these people, by giving it to a company that's owned by Elon Musk. What should really happen is the government should take a portion of what I just invested and set it on fire because that's what they like to do. $2.3 trillion growth, what are they going to tax off of that? $2.3 trillion wouldn't even get us going for, what is that, four months? worth of funding for the government maybe for that for that wealth growth 5.2 trillion dollar total wealth you took all of it every single bit of it from all 741 billionaires that there are that's not even enough to run the government for a year and then you've crashed the entire stock market because they'd have to sell shares of their companies to actually pay the government this money the government would have to take ownership of all these companies and so eventually they would all be dead that's just and then eventually we'd all be dead you know, so that that's what would happen there. They go on to say a number of billionaires, including Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, and Michael Bloomberg, have gamed the system to pay zero dollars in federal income taxes in recent years, even as their wealth was skyrocketing. They leave out the fact that Elon Musk just recently paid the biggest tax bill ever, paying fifteen billion dollars because he sold a bunch of shares and he had to pay money on those shares that he sold. And he had to pay the government, I think it was $15 billion, maybe it was $11 billion, something like that. Evading taxes means you found a way to keep your own money, by the way. They say it as a bad thing, uh, but it's actually just you finding the way to keep your own money. I want to look, do a nice little experiment here. This chart is, uh, is Tesla and their earnings each year. The top one, this top little histogram here is Tesla and their earnings each year. And what you see here is they didn't actually become profitable until 2020. They were losing money before that. I've only got data here going back to 2010, but they were a company before that. They were losing money before that. So that's not included in the number I have right now. One of the things that people think when they see, well, Elon Musk is worth, I don't remember the number, $250 billion or whatever it might be, 250 as of September 18th, probably a little less right now. Let's just say 250. When you look at that, you think, well, they've stolen that money from their workers. That's excess profits. That's labor theft. That's all these different things. And Elon Musk is a very perfect representation of the fact that that is not true. The reason they have all this wealth is because millions of people have gathered together to buy shares and ownership of their company so they can try and grow their own wealth for their retirement as well. Because when you look at Tesla's earnings from 2010 to 2023, what you'll see, just try to get a number in your head real quick before I say this. How much money do you think Tesla has profited? They're worth $740 billion dollars. How much money do you think Tesla has made? Like you put all their profits together. $23 billion. 
And that's just from 2010. They were losing money before that. And I don't have those numbers. Really good example of how the wealth that these people have, and not, not all of them, but the wealth that these people have is fairly disconnected from the amount of profits their companies have made. And so you can't look at Elon Musk and his $250 billion wealth. A good portion of that comes from SpaceX uh, as well. I don't know exactly how much of it is from Tesla. But it's not because they made $100 billion in profits this year at Tesla and Elon Musk scraped off a whole bunch of it. That's not what it is. Uh, in fact, I think in 2023, they're projected to make like $10 billion. And what's going to happen is their stock is going to go up or down and Elon Musk's net worth on paper is going to be worth $250 billion or maybe $300 or maybe $200, something like that. And so when you, when you look at these numbers and you say, well, that's money that should have been in the hands of workers or whatever. No, it's, it's not. That's not what it, it's literally not what it is. Musk was worth $50 billion before Tesla even made a single dollar. They were down billions of dollars. And Musk was worth $50 billion. It's impossible that it was from stealing money from the workers. The workers were stealing money from Tesla because they were making money while the company was losing money. So when you look at the unrealized gains and trying to tax that, well, what happens in a year where everyone's wealth declined by 50%, uh, like it did in 20... Was it just last year that that happened? 2022, I guess that happened. What do you do that year? You give them money? At the end of the year? No. All this is is people who are envious or hateful, and they th- I think they want a reason to blame someone else, and they see people doing really well, and they want to point at them and say it's their fault, or just in general, this Marxist idea that, that wealth is evil and that it must have come from exploitation, uh, which is just not true. The economy, all of us are better off because of the things that Elon Musk has done. You look at making the money from Tesla or the wealth from Tesla and then being able to start SpaceX and then being able to put Starlink uh, satellites everywhere and bring internet to the whole planet. Maybe we go to Mars, something like that. That's cool. You look at Jeff Bezos and all the positive benefits we've had from Amazon in our lives. Like those are, those are good things. It's not just an inherently bad thing that these people have any wealth. I saw this, I accidentally uh, went on threads the other day, which is a meta's version of Twitter that they're trying to get going still. I guess it came up in my Instagram feed and I clicked on it. Uh, This person, attorney Ryan says, I'm not saying grab your torch and pitchfork. He's not saying that. But Jeff Bezos built a $40 million clock in a mountain just for S-words and giggles. Meanwhile, millions of Americans are unfed and unhoused. Well, there's, there's 500,000 people in America that are homeless, I'm pretty sure, and um, unfed. No one starves to death in America because they can't find food. Uh, that's, that's not a thing that happens. I'll, I'll die on that hill. It's not a thing that happens, but whatever. Attorney Ryan says, this is what oligarchy looks like. A few obscenely rich people who bear zero social responsibility while the working poor subsidize their weird hobbies. It's not sustainable. And we have the numbers to enact meaningful change to fix that. So he's not saying to uh, 
grab your torch and pitchfork. But what he is saying is that enough of us are upset about this that we can overpower them and change this somehow. Only problem is if you were to start taxing that away, you would destroy the entire economy of America and thus the entire world. But let's not bother ourselves with things like that. We're mad right now. And so we got to talk about the stuff that we're mad about. This 40, by the way, he uses the term oligarchy. This is what oligarchy looks like. Robert Reich says this all the time. He starts, he starts probably 20 tweets a week with this is what oligarchy looks like. I was looking at oligarchy again because I've, I've looked it up before when he keeps mentioning it and I'm not seeing what that, what that means. Um, the uh, definition of oligarchy is government by a few, especially by a small faction of persons or families, those making up such government, oligarchs, a state governed by a few persons. Uh, the actual definition has to do with government set up like this. Uh, you would look closer to like Russia than, than you would in America where people who have created products that a lot of people like just have a lot of money. Doesn't mean that they're governing us and controlling our lives. But of course, if you look at the money they have and think, well, I should have that money or the U.S. government should have that money, then I guess you can say that they have all this power that they're taking from you and the things that you would rather be doing with someone else's money. I have a hard time following the logic behind it, but it goes something like that, right? Wikipedia has their own version of the definition of oligarchy, which is definitely not just because it's Wikipedia. They're the only one that defines it like this. They say oligarchy is a conceptual form of power structure in which power rests with a small number of people. So now we're not talking about having to have a government and having government power or a monopoly on the use of force over other people. Now it's just when power rests with a small number of people, these people may or may not be distinguished by one or several characteristics such as nobility, fame, wealth, education, corporate, religious, political, or military control. Throughout history, power structures considered to be oligarchies have often been viewed as coercive, relying on public obedience or oppression to exist. Is that what we have with uh, Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos? Or relying on the, the oppression? Are they relying on the oppression of the people so they can exist? Or do they have to give the people something that they want so that they can have the money and the wealth that they have? This is how this continues to snowball. You call things monopoly and you talk about wealth inequality and you talk about all the stuff that the government could be doing with the money and all of a sudden them having their own money equals oppression. This clock, by the way, this is interesting. It shows just how forward thinking some of these people are. Uh, someone like Jeff Bezos, who you know, seems like a dork for sure, but... Um, uh, this is from NBC. A 10,000-year clock is being built under a mountain owned by Jeff Bezos. And I don't know what happens if the clock doesn't make it 10,000 years. Do you get a refund on this? I don't know what the contract is on this thing. But um, the, clock builders, the clock's builders hope it will encourage people to think about humanity's distant future. Well, that's a pretty cool idea. You build this clock, and it's supposed to run for at least 10,000 years. And it's buried in a mountain, you know, so it's not going to be destroyed by climate change or whatever. And uh, get you to think about someone 10,000 years from now looking at this clock, you know, and so you start thinking about your future. Okay, that's cool, I guess. Uh, from Jeff Bezos, installation has begun, f begun 500 feet tall, all mechanical, powered by day-night thermal cycles, synchronized at solar noon, a symbol for long-term thinking. The 10,000-year clock is coming together 
thanks to the genius and all the people who put this thing together, spent $42 million on this clock. So you just get to scrutinize how we, how we spent this. It got me thinking, once again, a tweet that we talked about last week. Remember that tweet from Ed Krasenstein talking about how um, we were building wealth in America by sending bombs to Ukraine? And a uh, billion dollars to Texas and two billion to Pennsylvania and two billion to Arizona. You know, look at the people that are building these things. That's not Ed Krasenstein that posted out this critique of the clock. It was uh, Attorney Ryan who posted this out. Uh, but why don't we do the same thing with that? Like, there's people that are building this clock, there's people who made the metal, uh, there's people who have to, it's $40 million. It's not being used to blow people up or kill people. It's way less than billions of dollars. Uh, Seems like this has got some type of a productive impact, at least because you're paying the people who build this thing uh, to build it. So that's where the money's going, by the way, back out into the economy, back out into the U.S. economy for people to build this thing. I guess it's in the U.S. Actually, I didn't check that part. Um, You can fact check me on that. If you want to, I mean, look at the, look at the time-lapse video of this thing getting built. It looks pretty cool to me. I don't know. That's, I don't know a lot about clocks, but that's a, that's a fine looking clock. If you ask me 500 feet tall clock, it's gotta be pretty nice. Um, look at that. There's all kinds of people putting all these products that were made somewhere, (laughs) purchased from someone. They're getting paid to do it. Probably a pretty good amount of money. It's not as useless as asking people to dig a trench with a spoon or whatever. It's got some kind of value, I guess, although some people might find it valuable and some people won't. It's got to be different from just keeping the $40 million under his mattress, which is what Jeff Bezos normally does with money, right? It's like, no, no, that's a bad thing. That's got to be a bad thing. Uh, because Jeff Bezos did it. And what could we have done with this $40 million? Let me tell you what we could have done. We could have funded the government for three and a half minutes. That's what we could have done with the $40 million. We couldn't have fed everyone. We couldn't have housed everyone. We could have given it to the government and they would have spent it in 3.5 minutes. And then it would have been gone. That's And and we'd have like what we have right now. Okay, Our deficit is over a trillion dollars, closer to $2 trillion. And we're printing money to pay for these deficits. Well, no, this $40 million clock that Jeff Bezos is putting in, that's oligarchy. That's what it is. This is oppression. If I've ever seen it, this is some of the worst oppression I've ever seen. We just don't know how good we have it, folks. People want to keep us upset. Now i got a picture of a time machine on here. Interesting thought experiment before we, uh, before we go. I can't remember where. Uh, who originated this type of the experiment. But a picture of the time machine on here. And um, imagine, just thinking about how good we have it right now, whether or not we should be so envious and hateful and resentful towards people who have all these things. Um, your, your grandpa's, grandma's, grandpa's, grandma has a time machine. And comes the present day America and uh, goes to... Jeff Bezos's house, okay, and uh, that's where you go. What is it that your great 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 grandma uh, would be amazed by? Maybe one of the first things would be that 
there's just food. You know, you don't have to go out and hunt for it. You don't have to beg, borrow, and steal for it. There's just food whenever you need it. You know, that's cool. There's a fa- there's faucets with running water in the house. If you need to use the restroom, you know, you don't have to go outside and do it, or you don't have to have it stored underneath your house or whatever like it used to be. Everything used to smell like crap, by the way. So it was just like kind of going to your house. Stuff smelled terrible. They don't depict that well enough in the movies, if you're asking me. Uh, which is tough to depict the smell in the movies, but you know what I mean. You just you just go into this nice, pretty piece of porcelain, and uh, and you hit a button, and it just carries away to a far and distant place. And you can um, hold a little rectangular object in your hand, and uh, you could talk to people like anywhere in the world. You could talk to anyone. That's pretty, it's like, how do you do that? Or you could put it up to something and hit a button, not even a button, you just touch the thing and there's an accurate capture of whatever the thing you were pointing at looks like. You could watch moving pictures on there anytime that you wanted to, you know? You could jump in a metal box and uh, go faster and further than any horse could go with the power of hundreds of horses. You could get in the metal tube and you could be on the other side of the world in 10 hours if you wanted to be, you know? I think that's what she'd be most impressed by, most blown away by. Jeff Bezos is a god because of all of those things. And the... Really cool part about that is I just named a bunch of things that all of us have access to. All of us. She, she could have gone to any of our houses. Anyone listening right now. You can, be, <laughs> you can become a woman or a man. Look at this. We're gods. We can do whatever we want. We're not actually gods. I'm not trying to make anyone upset, you know. But just think about that. All the stuff I mentioned, that's not unique to Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates or Elon Musk. Anyone listening to me right now has the power to do all of those things if they want to do do those things. Billions of people around the world have the power to do all of those things. I mean, we live in a in a truly miraculous time, a, a magical time compared to the way that people used to live. And somehow we look at other people who have more wealth on paper than we do and we think that that's affecting us somehow. It's not. It's not affecting us unless there was actual some oppressive exploitation taking place, but that doesn't happen in a free market. It happens in authoritarian countries. But even here with our government that we think is tyrannical, we got it pretty good when it comes to making choices about our everyday lives. Inflation is our fault, but other than that, you know. Anyway, just wanted to leave you with something cool to think about. Have some appreciation, have some gratitude for the world uh, around us. If, if that is one thing, actually, big Gus, too. Yeah, people over 40 years old. Jeff Bezos is, what, in his 50s? Is he 60? I don't know, 60-something? I don't know. He's in pretty good shape, pretty good health. Could live another 20 years, 20, 30 years. His kids are alive. All of them. Actually, I don't know anything about Jeff Bezos' kids or if he even has kids. You know, Bill Gates has a few kids. They're alive, all of them. You know, Elon Musk has got a whole litter, litter of them. 
about to have a baker's dozen of kids, you know? And so pretty good times, pretty miraculous times that we live in. If you enjoyed today's show, go to goodmorningliberty.us, pick up some merch. You can pick it up at that website or if you want to remember godhatesfeds.com, godhatesfeds.com. That takes you to goodmorningliberty.us slash category slash all products slash something, whatever it is that the merch store is at. Uh, So you can go to that. Uh, Make sure you're subscribed on your favorite podcast app. Watch this video on YouTube or Rumble or Odyssey. More to come on Liberty at Night. This hour of Free Talk Live is brought to you by Dash Digital Cash. Dash is the cryptocurrency designed to be used for spending. Tired of the ever-inflating U.S. dollar? You can live your life on Dash instead with some handy websites. BitRefill.com has been accepting Dash for years and has a ton of big-name retailers and brands including grocers, gas stations, phone refills, Amazon, and even prepaid MasterCards. Plus, many of their gift cards are available at a discount. But what about paying your bills? Spritz.finance can do that, and they can send dollars to your bank account in case you still need those for some reason. Dash is one of the oldest cryptocurrencies and is widely available on exchanges, including the decentralized Maya protocol and in multi-crypto wallets. It's easy to get and use Dash. Start by learning more at Dash.org. Thanks to the Dash DAO for sending us 32 Dash per month to promote Dash on the air. Visit Dash.org to learn about Dash. Dash.org. Talk Live. Well, what is up, all of our liberty-loving friends? This is another fantastic episode of Liberty at Night with Nate and Charlie on the Free Talk Live network, coming at you from Nashville, Tennessee. Look us up on our daily podcast, Good Morning Liberty, on your favorite podcast app, or listen to this entire three-hour episode on the uh, Free Talk Live podcast channel this hour free talk live is brought to you by dash digital cash dash is the cryptocurrency designed to be used for spending rising fees have made bitcoin useless for purchases but dash continues to have fees less than one cent per transaction and has implemented really cool features to ensure it's undefeated as the most useful cryptocurrency in the marketplace from a technical standpoint, Dash transactions are irreversible and its network is protected from 51% attacks by their chain locks technology. There's no need to wait for a confirmation before considering a Dash transaction complete, so it's great for merchants. Dash is one of the oldest cryptocurrencies and is widely available in exchanges and in multi-crypto wallets. It's easy to get and use Dash. Start by learning more at Dash.org. And a big thanks to the Dash DAO for sending us 32 Dash per month to promote Dash on the air. Visit Dash.org to learn about Dash. Dash.org. I'm feeling good because I like football, and football went well for me this weekend. If you like football, then I guess maybe you had a good weekend too. Of course, not if you're an Eagles fan. I'm a Cowboys fan, and that was a fun game. Okay. Um, it's just me. Uh, Charlie is still in the Bahamas. I did finally talk to him last night for the first time, and I found out that he's coming back on Wednesday. He won't be here for the show on Wednesday, I'm sure, because he's traveling that day. Uh, but he'll he'll be here for the show on Thursday and then for Dumb Bleep on Friday. Uh, the live group is voting for Dumb Bleep of the year. I'm not with them either because I just did some kind of random 
update and now my settings aren't working to connect to the uh, the live group. Anyway, that's not for you guys to worry about. Make sure you follow the show, subscribe, do all those things. If this is your first time listening, just know there's normally two of us and right now there is only one so you're not going to get any of that witty banter back and forth and I'm not even hanging out with the Fed Haters Club right now. So it's literally just me. It was a very interesting weekend, all football aside. The the main thing I wanted to talk about today is free speech. Uh, a big thing happened over the weekend that honestly, I did not think was ever going to happen. Even after Alex, Alex Jones's conversation with Tucker Carlson that came out last week, uh, I you know, you could kind of tell that maybe Tucker was trying to bring him back into the mainstream a little bit. I still thought to myself, well, there's no way Elon Musk is going to let Alex Jones back on X. Free speech absolutist or not, he already said he's not going to. He's already going through all this stuff uh, with the advertisers and all of the uh, claims of anti-Semitism, all that. So there's no way he's going to go one step further and let Alex Jones back on X. But I was wrong. I was very wrong about that. The conspiracy theorist, InfoWars, Alex Jones, is back on X. And that should at least be exciting. Of course, all of the left-wing media, they've all got the same talking points. Uh, They all call him conspiracy theorist Alex Jones. And honestly... If you're going to call anyone a conspiracy theorist, I do think that that can apply to Alex Jones. It just so happens he's been right about some things. But when you throw a whole bunch of stuff against the wall, some of it's going to stick. That's kind of my that's kind of my two cents on Alex Jones. I've never been a never been a fan, okay? I can't stand listen to him talk, listening to him talk. It's just not my thing. I'm sorry. I know a lot of libertarians love the guy. Uh, seems to be a big Trump supporter as well, from from what I can tell anyway. Stolen election, all of that. Uh, it's just not my thing. But you know what? Free speech, that's a hell of a thing. You know, you got a platform where anyone can speak. I think that you need to be on there. Now, as far as a business decision is concerned, not not great in my opinion, and I will say it's kind of bittersweet for me because I get it. Uh, Let everyone on there, uh, let the chips fall where they may. Free speech is more important than money. I do, however, worry about the long-term plan here, and I worry if Elon Musk knows that X is going to eventually go bankrupt, that someone else is eventually going to take it over, and he's just kind of hit the the old effort button and making sure that he sticks to his principles on the way out the door so no one can give him crap for that. I worry just a bit about it because I do think it's going to hurt them getting some of these advertisers back. And um, I, I wonder if there's a trade-off there. Like you you keep him off of there and you're still able to make some money on the platform. I get it. That's not principled. It's not principled at all. I understand. Uh, but I, this did kind of make me worry about Okay, so we have a free speech platform for a little bit, but does this mean it's going to go away sooner than later? I don't know. Uh, The Washington Post says Elon Musk restores account of conspiracy theorist Alex Jones on X. There was a big uh, Twitter space X space, which makes me want to say space X, uh, that had a bunch of big people in there. It had Tate uh, in there. It had Alex Jones. It had Elon Musk, Vivek Ramaswamy, 
uh, taking bathroom breaks with his mic on, all kinds of cool stuff like that. The thing went on for a couple hours. Uh, at the time that I that I popped in there, there were a hundred thousand people listening in the thing, and uh, so clearly a lot of people interested about this. We'll see how it goes. Now, a lot of people are very upset about this. Of course, uh, he did this after doing one of his polls, one of his Vox Populi, Vox Day, asking if he should reinstate Alex Jones on the platform. 70% of the nearly 2 million votes said yes. So about 30% of them said no. I, I don't like it when he does these votes. He kind of takes the decision out of his hands, although he knows what the people are going to vote, what they're going to say. But he's able to say, well, the people voted. This is... I'm just putting this up to a Democratic vote, and this is what the people on the platform want. Uh, to me, that removes the principled part of it, because what if they voted no? Then are you still a free speech absolutist? I don't know. I just, I just don't like how that kind of removes the responsibility from him making the, the decision when he posts this stuff out. Um, one of the critiques of this, Fred Gutenberg, who I, I believe one of his children died in the Parkland shooting. And of course, Alex Jones, known for being a Sandy Hook denier. That's why he owes people like a billion dollars that they're never going to get paid. Um, Musk had posted out, I vehemently disagree with what he said about Sandy Hook but are we a platform that believes in freedom of speech or are we not? Apparently that comes down to how the people voted, not what you believe, Elon. That is what it comes down to in the end. If the people vote him back on, this will be bad for X financially, but principles matter more than money. Well, there weren't any principles. You put it up to a vote. What if they would have voted in a different way? So I, once again, kind of annoying talking about principles there. Fred Gutenberg responds says, no, Elon Musk. He did more than just say things. He defamed people, which the courts have decided. There's judgments against him. The legal system is working that out. And he incited violence and harassment against them. I don't like the idea of incitement. You can say things. It's still up to people whether or not they do anything after you say things. Uh, he has a $1.5 billion judgment against him. You are free. You could still be on X and have judgments against you, by the way. You are free to say stupid Blank, as you often do, but lying about your motives only reinforces how pathetic you are. I mean, what else do you think his motives are in this case? He knows this is going to cost him money. They're already having a hard time with advertisers. This is going to make that much worse, for sure. So so what are you saying his motives are, Fred? Uh, I'm, I'm not sure, and I'm sure neither is Elon Musk. So listen, it's a big, it's a big weekend for free speech. We're going to talk about the... Um, the universities, you know, they had that uh, congressional hearing that went kind of poorly for some of the heads of the major universities. Uh, there's also COP28 going on right now. We're going to talk about something Al Gore said. But overall, it's a win for free speech. What a time to be alive right now where a guy who's sometimes the richest person in the world buys a platform and restores mostly free speech to millions of people after the government had worked so hard to take control of those platforms and take it away. Uh, you know, it's just, a, it's a pretty cool time to be alive. And if you are, if you're worried about what Alex Jones is going to say, I mean, what better platform for him to be speaking on than X? Because X has a great thing called community notes. And this is something that I think uh, the critics aren't realizing yet 
is that if Jones goes out there and posts some kind of crazy stuff that has no backing behind it whatsoever, making claims about people or making claims about historical events or whatever, Community Notes has been hard at it right now. They're going to have to open up a whole other floor for Alex Jones and the people over at InfoWars. But they're going to end up having things that Jones posts out that's got a big community note under it. And instead of pushing all of his comments down into the basement onto the black market where his followers just see him as more and more right all the time. And of course, the fact that uh, he was censored back in 2018, that means he was right about everything and they don't want you to hear the things that he has to say. They are trying to keep him silenced, whoever they are. Uh, Now he's going to say things right out there in the open in front of millions of people who weren't hearing him before. And you might have the opportunity for him to get fact-checked every now and then. Whereas before, I doubt he was getting fact-checked that often, just on his own little private show on his private website. You know, So this, this is much better, in my opinion. You can have people responding to the things that he's saying. And the truth can win out. Why not have that? That sounds much better to me. So moving on from that, listen, I'm just not, I'm not a big Alex Jones fan. I, I, of course, he's got the right to say whatever he wants. Um, I've, I've been down with some of the, in, in fact, when the Sandy Hook thing first happened, there for a minute, I saw some of his videos about the shooting and I was like, huh, that is weird. That guy was laughing until he went up to the microphone and then he looked like he was crying all of a sudden and and uh, that, that person does look like they could be an actor or or uh, we didn't really see any shots of uh, kids or whatever at the school. Like, and I was and I was free to question all that stuff, just like everyone else is. But eventually the truth wins out and it's much harder for it to win out if you just push it down there in the back alleyway and you have back alley uh, misinformation you know, you're always going to get stuff like that. So what about uh, Al Gore? He's talking about people having access to non-mainstream information and talking about that threatening democracy. Of course, it really threatens him because he's known as a guy who makes claims about stuff that have never turned out to be true. And he's made a whole career of saying things that never turned out to be true. And so, of course, he wants just the mainstream media to be running all of the information that goes on out there because they're not going to fact check him on everything. And so now when he's out there talking, well, you get a community note or you get some alternative opinions out there. That's very dangerous for democracy or Al Gore. I don't know. Let's see what he had to say. To one based on broadcasting and then moving on to the internet and to social media has disrupted the balances that used to exist uh, that made representative democracy work much better. Because a free self-governing people rely on a shared base of knowledge that serves as a basis for reasoning together. The shared basis of knowledge, he wants to be uh, cultivated and put together by very specific people in, in big corporations that are all taking marching orders from the government and not from just the people all putting all of their knowledge out there Uh, He doesn't want that whatsoever. Let's keep going. Collectively. But uh, if you have social media that is dominated by algorithms that uh, 
pull people down these uh, rabbit holes that are a bit like pitcher plants. These algorithms, uh, they are the digital equivalent of AR-15s. They ought to be banned. They really ought to be banned. It's an abuse of the public forum. But when these, when people are pulled down these uh, rabbit holes, you know what's at the bottom of the rabbit hole? That's where the echo chamber is. Uh, and if you spend too much time in the echo chamber, what's weaponized is another form of AI, not artificial intelligence, artificial insanity. <laughs> I'm serious. I'm serious. What's the definition of insanity? Like saying... Uh, for him might be saying the same things over and over again and none of it ever coming true? Or would uh, artificial insanity be the people who actually believe the things that he says all the time? He says these algorithms and the way people are getting their information on social media, they're just as dangerous as AR-15s. They need to be banned just like AR-15s do. Well, he's wrong on both of those things. And he's seeing that there is a danger facing him and his power, and the power of all the people that he's talking to, the power of the guy interviewing him, the power of all of his friends that are hanging out out there at COP28 right now, that's what they're actually worried about. It's the same thing that they worry about when people have AR-15s, because that threatens the government's power at all. That holds, that keeps the government's power at bay some, somewhat, all right? So don't, don't be fooled. Uh, let's go on to this university thing. Now, we didn't really cover the... Uh, congressional hearing that happened last week. They're talking about anti-Semitism and uh, on these uh, college campuses and whether or not it goes against uh, their, their rules, whether or not, you know, they can allow people to say maybe genocidal things, maybe from the river to the sea, maybe supporting Hamas or maybe just supporting Palestine or maybe just being against Israel, the government of Israel in general, or maybe they're just straight up anti-Semites. And so they were being asked about this. Uh, I believe it was the president of, um, I think it was UPenn that uh, was let go. And don't don't be fooled there either. That's because of money. That's because of big donors pulling millions of dollars away from the university. It's not because the university had the come, had a come to Jesus moment on anything. Um, that's it's because they're worried about money. There was this really interesting uh, opinion piece in the, let me see, Washington Post called to fight anti-Semitism on campuses, we must restrict free speech. To fight anti-Semitism on campuses, we must restrict speech. And this is from uh, Claire Finkelstein. Finkelstein who works for Pennsylvania, University of Pennsylvania, I believe. Uh, the testimony of three university presidents before a House committee last week provoked outrage after they suggested that calls on their campuses for Jewish genocide might not have violated their school's free speech policies. One of them, Liz McGill, was forced to step down on Saturday as the president of the University of Pennsylvania, where I, the, this is the writer, is a AMA faculty member. But their statement shouldn't have come as a surprise. Congress could have assembled two dozen university presidents and likely have received the same answer from each of them. This is because the value of free speech has been elevated to a near sacred level on university campuses. Let me read that again for you. This is because they, people should not have been surprised by their answers. 
Because the value of free speech has been elevated to a near sacred level on university campuses. And if you've gone to a university or you've paid attention to what's been happening at the universities over the last few years, you're probably laughing right now like I was when I first read this. As a result, universities have had to tolerate hate speech, even hate speech calling for violence against ethnic or religious minorities. With the dramatic rise in anti-Semitism, we are discovering that this is a mistake. Anti-Semitism and other forms of hate cannot be fought on university campuses without restricting poisonous speech that targets Jews and other minorities. Countering speech with more speech, which is what we would say needs to happen, may just mean adding to the hateful rhetoric on campus and would not solve the problem. And university presidents can set up all the task forces, study groups, and educational modules they like. But what kind of educational effort could possibly bring warring groups together that are busy calling for one another's violent demise? Well, what are you going to do when you just don't allow people to speak? They're, they're going to go underground. Their ideas are not going to be challenged. They're just going to assume that they're right. And they're going to just assume that you're part of it, that you're part of this big structure. They're not going to learn that they're wrong. They're not going to learn any lessons. They're not going to hear from other people because you're just going to ban people speaking to each other. Kind of like what happened with Alex Jones and all the things that he says. While open expression and academic freedom are critically important values in higher education, there are other values that universities must promote as well. For example, encouraging civil dialogue across differences. How are you going to do that when you're going to ban some speech that people are saying? Cultivating critical listening skills. What are they going to listen to when people can't talk? Developing the skills to build community relationships. Promoting the ability to engage in moral reflection. Why would you need to reflect when you're never wrong? And building resilience in the face of challenge. What challenges will you face when no one can challenge you? These normative skills cannot be taught... I, by the way, some of that was not what she was writing. That was, that was my response to some of the stuff that she wrote. These skills cannot be taught effectively in an environment where students and faculty are hurling calls at one another for the elimination of ethnic, religious, or racial subgroups. Universities must also consider their obligations to broader society as they prepare young people to assume responsibilities in public life. What values do university presidents think are most important to prepare leaders in a democracy? Well, certainly not allowing people to say what they want. The ability to shout intemperate slogans or the ability to engage in reason dialogue with people who have moral and political differences. Is it any surprise that students educated in an environment of anti-Semitism would behave as anti-Semites in their adult lives? I just want people to be challenged. I want them to be told that they're wrong. Now, of course, some of these protests, and especially where people are being intimidated, they where they literally don't feel safe, not like... You don't feel welcome. I mean, like you don't feel safe to walk on campus or you're getting shouted at every time you go from building to building or your your uh, your travel is being impeded by people. Uh, those those things should definitely be tackled. And, and also another sidebar here, if they're private, if it's a private university, I think they can make whatever rules they want. I don't think the government needs to get involved in this. Uh, with a private university, we just need to be aware of the kind of values uh, that they're upholding at those uh, universities. Like all skills, students will become experts at that which they practice most. 
Privileging free speech on campus relative to other values emphasizes skills that pose the greatest challenge to our democracy and fails to cultivate the skills democratic societies most need. All right, coming right up, we're going to go through the rest of this article and some of the ridiculousness that you can hear so far uh, in this article as it pertains to free speech on college campuses. Do we really have too much free speech on college campuses right now. Is that what we have a problem with? I don't know. Look us up on your favorite podcast app, by the way. It's Good Morning Liberty. Go to our website, goodmorningliberty.us. Go to joingmail.com to join the Fed Haters Club. More to come on Liberty at Night. Eleutheromania. The insatiable desire for freedom. It's the new three-song heavy metal EP from Captain Kickass. Available now on your favorite music app or get it directly from CaptainKickass.com. Liberty and Night with Nate and Charlie on the Free Talk Live Network. Look for us on your favorite podcast app under the name Good Morning Liberty. Over a thousand episodes on there. We've been going through this opinion piece in the WAPO from a faculty member at the University of Pennsylvania. This is the paragraph I found to be the most egregious because she's talking about how, well, if you privilege free speech, uh, though that will emphasize skills that pose the greatest challenge to democracy. If you allow people, you privilege free speech, that poses the greatest challenge to our democracy and will not cultivate the skills that democratic societies most need. So to build a better democracy, we need to have these people go through an environment where they're not allowed to say the things that might upset other people. And that is how you build the best democracy. That's great. The crisis of anti-Semitism in our universities mirrors the crisis in our democracy. Isn't it time for university presidents to rethink that rule and open expression and academic freedom play in the educational mission of their institutions? Now, responding to this, uh, this previous line that I highlighted here, which you could watch, you could see that I highlighted this line if you go watch this on YouTube or Rumble or, or Odyssey or whatever. This is because the value of free speech has been elevated to a near sacred level on university campuses. And this is someone who comes from the University of Pennsylvania. So I was like, okay, how is free speech going on college campuses? Well, I went to FIRE, their website, and uh, 2024 college free speech rankings. Isn't this great? What's the state of free speech on America's college campuses? They've got the uh, best and worst colleges for free speech right here. The five best and the five worst. The five best are Michigan Technological University, Auburn University, University of New Hampshire, Oregon State University, and Florida State University for the top five. The bottom five are Harvard University. That's the worst one. University of South Carolina, University of Pennsylvania, Georgetown University, and Fordham University. Those are the, uh, the bottom five. But of course, coming from someone who is on the faculty at the University of Pennsylvania, the problem here 
is that we've elevated free speech to a sacred level. There's nothing these colleges can do because they just let people do whatever they want on these campuses. Deplatforming attempts at these bottom five schools. Uh, Harvard has tried to deplatform nine people. Uh, they were 78% successful at that. University of South Carolina has tried to deplatform four people. They were 100% successful. University of Pennsylvania has tried to deplatform six people. They uh, were a 100% successful at that. Georgetown tried 10. They were 60% successful. Fordham University tried three, and they were 100% successful. So, of course, they have elevated free speech to just a, a uh, massive sacred level here. On this survey, how comfortable would you feel doing the following on your campus? They say very uncomfortable, somewhat uncomfortable, somewhat comfortable, very comfortable. Um, Publicly disagreeing with a professor about a controversial political topic. The uncomfortable side is about 70%. Expressing disagreement with one of your professors about a controversial political topic. The uncomfortable is about 60%. Expressing your views on a controversial political topic during an in-class discussion, over 60% are uncomfortable with that. Expressing your views on a controversial political topic to other students during a discussion in a common campus space, space, such as the quad, dining hall, or lounge, uh, 55% are uncomfortable with that. Expressing an unpopular political opinion to your fellow students on a social media account tied to your name. Uh, about 75% of the respondents were uncomfortable with that. But of course, they have elevated free speech to in their sacred level on college campuses. And that is the problem that these universities are somehow going to have to tackle. Now, they propose, uh, the Wharton Board of Advisors at UPenn has proposed a resolution to punish any student or faculty member that uses hate speech or celebrates murder or genocide. The proposed resolution uh, is vague and threatens to ban wide swaths of speech. This comes from Jonathan Friedman on X. Uh, Let's see. Standards of behavior in this proposed resolution. Students and faculty or employees will not celebrate or advocate for the murder, killing, genocide, or annihilation of any individual classmate or any group or individuals in our community. Okay. Students will not engage in hate speech, whether veiled or explicit. That incites violence. Well, how do you prove that it incites violence and what do you call hate speech? Students will not use language that threatens the physical safety of community members. Okay, well, threatening physical safety of people. Students who violate the above standards of behavior will be subject to immediate discipline. The hate speech one is concerning for me. And I'll tell you what bothers me about this. This all comes down to people having protests on college campuses and uh, you could say they're supporting Hamas. There were people out there celebrating what happened on October 7th, which I, which I think is gross. You know, I think that that's really a disgusting uh, thing to do to celebrate the kinds of things that happened on on October 7th. And of course they're talking about anti-Semitism. What do they call anti-Semitism? Anyone who is against what Israel does is anti-Semitic. Now there are people who actually just hate Jews for being Jews. But even people like Nikki Haley has said that they need to change the federal rules and definition to include basically the critique of Israel, that that's anti-Semitic if you're out there critiquing Israel or talking negatively about them. That's really dangerous. Let me tell you why this frustrates me to no end. Uh, I put out this thing on, on X over the weekend, and it said Republicans in 2020 
quote, uh, hate speech doesn't exist. In 2021, um, what is it that they said? Uh, hate speech is free speech. Snowflake, get over it. And in 2022, they're like, oh my God, George Orwell was right in 1984. This is crazy. And then in 2023, they're like, ban hate speech for anyone who talks bad about Israel. That's 2023. 2024, they're like, vote for us because the left wants to take away your free speech. Look, just look at what's going on on college campuses. And that's the kind of thing that's really bothering me right now that I, I mentioned last week, I think on Dumb Bleep of the Week as well. Are there actually any principles out, out there? I know there are some people who are principled. I, I do. I, I hear a lot of people talking that are principled, but the mob on any side when it gets together, the mob has no principles. And right now what we're seeing is, our, what we're seeing are calls to ban hate speech on college campuses after years of talking about how terrible it was that people weren't allowed to speak on college campuses because people on the campus were calling right-wing talking points hate speech. And of course, there's just no free speech on college campuses. Uh, Charlie and I went and saw this uh, documentary. I don't remember who put it together, but it had a lot of the Daily Wire people in it, and it uh, was called No Safe Spaces. It was a good documentary talking about what was going on on college campuses. And now it's like they're calling for that. If it's anti-Semitism, if that's the thing that you're worried about, and anti-Semitism could be hating Jews or calling for genocide, or it could just be being against Israel's strategy and the war against Gaza. And it it's very troubling to me now that they're going to come together and we're going to have the right and the left come together and say, oh yeah, okay, yeah, we should ban hate speech. And guess what? The left is going to get their hate speech. They can get banned. The right's going to get their hate speech. They can get banned. And all this talking that we did over the last several years about how there was no speech on college campuses, no free speech on college campuses, everyone's just going to completely forget about that and say, well, at least no one's saying anything bad about the Jews. I mean, I know that you can't go out there and talk about Thomas Jefferson, or you can't spread any libertarian ideals out there, uh, or you can't say any facts as it pertains to police brutality or, or whatever it is, uh, but at least no one's out there talking bad about the Jews. And so, you know, we just got to take that win. And it actually never was about free speech. It was just about you being allowed to say the things that you wanted to say. And at the end of the day, the right and the left are going to come together to hold back speech because it was never about the principle. It was just about the things, specific things that they cared about in that moment. And they'll agree on this just like they agree on military spending and welfare spending when it comes to Congress. You know, the, the right will vote for more welfare spending as long as they can get the left to vote for more military spending. And all that happens is the government grows bigger and bigger. And that's what happens when people don't actually have any principles. And I'm really worried that that's the point that we're moving towards that what we're, whatever rules we're going to force these colleges to come up with are going to make it harder for people on the right or for libertarians to go out there and talk about the things that we want to talk about because there will be a certain portion of the student body that equates that to hate speech and we won't be able to do it. And everything that we've said about this over the last few years still applies even to people that are upset about what people are saying right now uh, about about Israel or, or about the Jews. Uh, you, don't, you don't get anywhere whenever you abandon your principles. But... Not to leave you on too bad of a note, 
uh, I guess on free speech wins. Uh, we got we got Alex Jones back on back on X. I'm just excited for the community notes section of it. All right, folks, if you enjoyed today's short episode, nice Monday show where I wasn't able to even go live today. I don't have any co-host. Just uh, just spitting facts right now. <laughs> uh, then make sure you tell a friend or a family member to follow and subscribe to this podcast. Uh, share it in a text message to someone. Say, hey, listen to this podcast. And if you've already done all those things, well, make sure you go leave a rating and review. That's very important for the uh, tyrannical AR-15 algorithms out there that Al Gore was talking about. Uh, so you want to do that. And if you've already done that as well, then you need to go to GodHatesFeds.com and get yourself a God Hates Feds t-shirt, or you can get yourself a Don't Tread on Me t-shirt, or whatever other shirts and merch or coffee cups and other random stuff that are on the merch store, GodHatesFeds.com. And go to JoinGML.com so you can hang out with myself and Charlie and the Fed Haters Club every single day of the week when we want to. So we're going to uh, get into Dumb Bleep of the Week now because we had a lot of extra content. Let's get into it. Today is everyone's favorite show of the week. Uh, that is Dumb Bleep of the Week. That's where the live group, the Fed Haters Club, put in a bunch of submissions. Uh, we got stuff from people on Twitter as well. I think I got some of those in there. I don't really pay attention to where the submissions came from when they go into the show. I just open every single link that's been sent to me, and then I whittle the list down. Uh, and then I submitted a bunch of things as well. We are getting very close, dangerously close, actually, to Dumb Bleep of the Year. I think uh, Saturday I will release the February recap. Sunday I'll release the March recap and we'll have to get this monthly voting done so we can get down to the quarterly semifinals, so we can get down to the final four, so we can actually figure out who Dumb Bleep of the Year is going to go to, and so we can send them a trophy. So if you want to get in, you can still get in on the voting for that, and actually you can still get submissions into some of the next Dumb Bleeps. That you could end up winning Dumb Bleep of the Year still, and you could get the coveted, the coveted, Dumb Bleep of the Year trophy. It's a big deal. It's a, like kind of like a lifetime achievement award, except for way better. And so you just pay seven bucks a month at minimum on the in the Fed Haters Club. Join gmail.com so you can hang out with us. All right, let's get into Dumb Bleep of the Week. We got a we've got a lot in here today because I'm by myself, so it's good to have some extra content when you're doing a show by yourself. And number one, a few of these we've already talked about this week. Uh, but number one goes to this article that we talked about on Monday from The Atlantic, from Annie Lowry, entitled, not Annie Lowry, I'm saying what the title is, uh, Inflation is Your Fault. If people are so mad about high prices, why do they keep buying so many expensive things? Now, when we talked about this on Monday, I said it wasn't as dumb as it originally sounded. It's not as dumb as the headline because she does actually mention that wages has been have been going up and that's been creating inflationary pressure. She mentions the printing of money, the COVID lockdowns, things like that, and talks about that being a major driver of inflation. But then she also talks about people's spending habits and people spending way too much money on things. Unfortunately, she goes on to mention a bunch of things that don't really... Uh, don't really factor into the inflation number that much, like mentioning things that have a, a 0.1% weight on what the inflation number is. And just kind of leaves out the fact that when you're in a high inflationary environment, 
you are incentivized to spend your money now because the things that you want to buy, especially if it's like some kind of big item, on Monday I mentioned furniture that my wife and I just bought. Um, you, we wanted to buy that now because it's probably just going to be more expensive later. That's one of the reasons that inflation keeps picking up because it makes you want to spend your money before things get expensive. And so she does kind of miss the mark on that. And then she also misses the mark on the fact that we all live in the environment that the government created here. It wasn't just a pandemic that forced us into doing these lockdowns. Um, it was a decision by our government to shut down the country, to give people a bunch of money, to print a bunch of money, and then not allow people to be productive in the economy. And of course, that led to a bunch of inflation. And that is why we still have the buying power in the economy that we have right now. That is why things are still moving up. And then, of course, and you can just go back to Monday's episode where we talk about this in detail. A lot of people putting money on credit cards right now. That's where a lot of the buying power is coming from. And those bills, I believe, will come due sometime in the middle of next year. Stuff's going to be looking quite different. So is inflation your fault? Well, did you start this whole cycle? Did you create this situation that we're in? Only in the sense that we elect the people who make these decisions. In that way, you could say it's your fault. But other than that, uh, it's kind of the government's fault. And I'm not even just saying Biden. You know, there was $2 trillion stimulus package while Trump was still in office as well. And we were already running massive deficits at that time. Government taking money out of the productive economy and spending it on BS that we don't need already before this whole thing happened. But of course, Biden came in and threw a bunch of gasoline on fire that had already been started by the previous administration. So inflation is your fault is dumb bleep number one. We have 12 today, and so we will move on to dumb bleep number two. Number two is Randy Weingarten. Oh, those Galdern teachers unions. They're so great. I love them. Uh, she tweets out, Worldwide, the extraordinary drop in math and reading scores shows how detrimental the COVID-19 pandemic and its aftermath was to student learning and highlights just how important it is that we prepare now. My statement, and then she has a statement out here, the COVID-19 pandemic and its aftermath. Or how about the government's response to the pandemic, the teachers' unions' responses to the pandemic and wanting to keep the schools closed for way longer than they should have been, which was never, and uh, wanting to continue doing this until... Well, we'll talk about that here in a second. She goes on to say, in-person learning is where kids do best, which is why educators and their unions worked hard. Educators and their unions worked hard to reopen U.S. schools for safe in-person learning beginning back in April 2020 and why we've spent the last several years following the pandemic prioritizing public schooling and investing in real solutions for kids. That's a hashtag uh, that helped them recover and thrive. Luckily, there's a community notes on this thing. Uh, here's an article from usnews.com. In July of 2020, Randy threatened strikes if schools returned in person. One from Axios in August 2020. Randy was pushing to strengthen online learning. And of course, we had those strikes threatened if they returned to in-person learning. And then there's one from fee.org, one of our favorite places. Uh, she only changed her tune when returning in person was inevitable. Like they, they had to do it. And so she's like, oh yeah, yeah, we have to do this. It's time to do this. That's a, that's what happens. So 
when they say that they were pushing for schools to return to in-person learning, what they mean is they were setting up a bunch of standards that were nearly impossible to obtain and saying, why don't you do this? Well, if you just do this so we could get back to in-person learning. We, we want unicorns and rainbows at every single school in the entire country. Why don't you give us unicorns and rainbows in every single school? If you would just do this, we would get back to in-person learning. We really want to do this. And so they would set up these half a trillion dollar goals that they would have to hit to turn all of these schools into some type of spaceship uh, for kids to go learn in. And of course, it was unattainable by many schools and for the government, which has no money to do. And all the while, she could say, yeah, we really want to reopen schools. Just do unicorns and rainbows and, and we'll reopen. That's what we want. If you don't do that, then we're going to go on strike. Here's part of her statement. Worldwide, the extraordinary drop in math and reading scores shows how detrimental the pandemic and its aftermath was to student learning and highlights how important it is that we prepare now so we're not caught off guard during another public health, health crisis. That means that these schools need more money so they can do more preparation on this. While students in the U.S. are no worse off than students in most other systems around the world, the data reconfirm what we've always known. They've always known this. In-person learning is where kids do best, which is why educators and their unions work so hard to reopen U.S. schools for safe in-person learning back in April of 2020, and why we've spent the last several years following the pandemic prioritizing public schooling. These scalable, adaptable solutions that are part of the AFTs, that's the American Federation of Teachers campaign, to strengthen public schools align closely with the OECD's principles for equitable and effective COVID-19 recovery. They strive to create safe, welcoming, and well-funded schools with robust, well-rounded curricula that address loneliness, learning loss, and literacy. That's right, the three L's, the four L's, actually, learning loss. And there are focuses on well-being, rapid wrapping services around schools and making them hubs of their communities, regulating the influence of harmful social media and expanding opportunities for experimental and hands-on learning that equip kids with skills and knowledge to pursue careers. It's all for the kids, of course. And if you just give them eight easy payments of $100 billion, they'll be able to do this. The schools are underfunded, folks, as you know. We only spend more money than anyone else on schools, and it's just not enough. It's just not possible. We have to hire some more administrators to administrate some of these new funds that we're going to do. So if you give a school a million dollars, they're going to hire an administrator at $900,000 a year to figure out how to spend $100,000. So that you just can't, <clears throat> you can't listen to these people gaslight the hell out of you. She didn't want the schools to reopen. The teachers didn't want the schools to reopen. It was pretty cool to be getting paid to not do anything, wasn't wasn't it, folks, if we could only go back to 2020, that would just be amazing. But now she gets to sit here and act like they wanted the schools to reopen the whole time. Just burns me up. Okay, that was number two, Randy Weingarten. Number three, this one's just going to be called gun control. The uh, first one is a post from Chuck Schumer who says, This week, I will put the assault weapons ban on the Senate floor. Hopefully that's into a trash can that's on the Senate floor. After I led the passage of the Brady Bill and the assault weapons ban 30 years ago, America saw a decrease in mass shootings and gun deaths. We must stand with the American people and against the gun lobby. So first off, the assault weapons ban did not actually 
decrease mass shootings. And the numbers were so small to begin with that it's a statistically insignificant change if there even was one. There was a jump after the assault weapons ban uh, expired and the massive jump actually happened in handguns uh, and then eventually picked up into being uh, a lot of them with rifles afterwards. There's a there's a chart here that I made and I'll put a link to the video. I put out like a 10 minute clip of us talking about this. I don't know, a couple months ago, something like that. Mass shootings by decade from 82 to 2023. And the decade before the assault weapons ban, you had eight with handguns and nine with rifles. In the decade of the assault weapons ban, you had eight with handguns and eight with rifles. That is a decrease of one, one mass shooting, which uh, for all of the studies that have studied this have basically said that is a statistically insignificant thing. That's one person that decided not to do something. Okay. And then you have a massive jump in the decade afterwards, uh, still eight with rifles and a big jump with handguns and rifles are the biggest ones now. Uh, So no, Uh, We don't know that the assault weapons ban worked the first time and doing it now would not do anything. Plus, uh, I don't care what you even think about it. I still have the right to defend myself from the government. I'm not out here hunting deer, okay? A couple more gun control posts. Ryan Sheed says no one needs an AR-15. If you can't protect your home and family with handguns and shotguns, you're doing it wrong. Just admit it, Second Amendment advocates. You don't care enough about kids being shot in the face during science class to make concessions on gun laws and owning an AR-15. Uh, there's no proof that if you got rid of all the AR-15s that the shootings would stop. We'll finish this one up and do a lot more on Liberty at Night. We just had a a shooting that people were talking about quite a bit and that was done with a handgun that was on the UNLV campus Um, there's no proof that the shootings just wouldn't happen they would just happen with a different gun and then second you can't get rid of all the AR-15s anyway these people are just uh, selling you a fake promise to try and make themselves look better and that's about it and let's move on to the one from yesterday I believe or maybe it was the day before there was the shooting on the UNLV campus and you had a couple people go out there and say well if we just would have passed universal background checks uh, this shooting would have been prevented we had a congressman say that uh, from Connecticut can't remember his name right now we have this person Samuel Schwartz with an orange square which means he cares about kids getting killed by guns Uh, who says, today Republicans shot down three life-saving gun bills. Hours later, there are reports of yet another mass shooting, this time at UNLV. This could have been prevented if these bills were passed. That shooting that day could have been prevented if those bills had been passed earlier that day. Uh, That's just how much these people don't care about the death of of innocent people. You know, Um, secondly, uh, especially at the time that this was posted, which was a couple hours after the shooting, you had no clue who the shooter was, what the motive was, what weapons were used, how they obtained the weapons, whether or not they would have passed every single background check, uh, or whether or not they wouldn't have, and they just got them uh, on the black market anyway. I don't know anything about how the person got the gun, but I do know that it was a, a 
in his bio said semi-retired professor who was mad about not getting hired on, ended up shooting faculty and staff at UNLV, not students, and used a handgun. And there's no indication that if we had universal background checks, that this person would not have passed their background check. But these people want to come out here and make themselves look better, try and make other people look bad. They're trying to use the death of innocent people to do that, which is extra disgusting. So that's dumb leap number three. Number four, okay, we got a video. This is from Public Citizen. This is a socialist commie page that for some reason I get all the posts from, I guess because I interact with them, so I keep getting the posts. This is a person, if you're not watching the uh, video on YouTube or Rumble or Odyssey, uh, this is someone who's using grains of rice to... Uh, show like each grain of rice is a million dollars and then they show these handfuls of rice and this is how much it would cost to do uh, universal child care and this is how much it would cost to house everyone and this is how much rice it would cost to do this and so we'll we'll play the video just want to give you a little description before i hit play If a single grain of rice is worth a million dollars, then this is worth a billion dollars. Universal free school meals for one year was about five of these. Now, if we wanted to house every single homeless person in America for a year, it would cost about $7.4 billion. It would only cost us $47 billion to replace every lead pipe in America. Now, universal child care is about $70 billion. Now, if we wanted to wipe out all medical debt in the United States, it would cost $195 billion. And universal paid leave would be $547 billion. This comes out to $864 billion, which is still less than what we give the Pentagon every single year. Still think we can't afford it? All right, so there's a tube that she's filling up with rice. And this is how much we uh, would pay for each one of these things. Of course, the amounts that she throws out there are just, they're kind of ridiculous figures because for one thing, once you decided you were going to pay for all those things with government money, the price of them would uh, quadruple immediately. She says you could house every person for $7 billion. Well, we the housing and urban development has over a $70 billion a year budget. They spend that much uh, let's just say on average 50 billion, like over the last 10 years or whatever, they've spent that much and their goal is to house people. And we still have like the same amount of people that are homeless. And so why is it that we're just going to get $7 billion more and that's going to fix the problem? You put all of these things together and it equals $864 billion. And we gave the Pentagon in the last budget $886 billion. So you think we can't afford that? The answer is no, we can't afford that. And we can't afford the Pentagon budget either. That's why we're running up massive deficits. That's why we have crazy inflation like we have right now. We can't afford the things that we're currently doing. The fact that we are doing something is not proof that we can afford to do another thing. That's not how that works. Like, oh, I bought this car. So you're trying to tell me I can't afford another car? Yeah, you see how stupid that is? Well, that's what she's doing. She's also doing, the rice makes no sense of putting the rice in the tube. What does putting rice in a tube have to do with anything? At least if you were comparing them to something else, here's a good thing you could do. Here's how much I said we could house everyone for. Here's the 70 billion. Now give me 10 times that amount of rice. That's how much we spend every single year trying to house people already right now. That would be a good comparison if you wanted to get the rice out for that. Uh, So it's a stupid comparison. 
and it's a stupid idea or it's it's dumb. Sorry, I'm not saying stupid because it's dumb bleep of the week, not stupid bleep of the week. That doesn't sound good at all. Okay, so that is a <coughs> public citizen. And what number was that? That was dumb bleep number four. Great job. We got 12 of them, so we got to get going here. Here's a good one. Dumb bleep number five. This is from Roger Halam. 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 Uh, who's the co-founder of Extinction Rebellion and Just Stop Oil, which is almost a terrorist organization, in my opinion, uh, does more damage than climate change every year. Extinction Rebellion does. Does everything they can to stop people from actually solving problems uh, when it relates to the environment. So uh, he says, you either stop eating meat to stop society from collapsing, or you stop eating meat because society has collapsed. Either way, your days of eating meat are coming to an end. Is that a threat? All right, just one little point here. You stop eating meat because society has collapsed. I'm, pretty, I'm, fairly, I'm fairly sure. I don't have to go back in the history books, but I'm pretty sure people were eating meat when we didn't have the society that we have right now. You know, People go out and they hunt meat. Now, sure, we didn't have big factory farms and stuff like that. This is the idea that, of course, climate change is going to destroy the planet and that the uh, methane emissions uh, from from the cows, the cow farts, are going to kill all of us. And so, listen, you've got two options. You're going to stop eating meat or you're going to stop eating meat. That's it. It just depends on how many people you want to take with you. You know what? I'm going to take that bet. And I'm going to go out tonight and I'm going to have a nice, big old, fat, dry-aged steak. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be so good. I freaking hate Extinction Rebellion and these Just Stop Oil people. They're nuisance. They're tourists. These are some of the people that throw chicken soup on a painting or whatever to protest climate change. I don't know what they do. Probably tomato soup would make more sense. Something like that. Eco-terrorists. Yeah, there you go. And like I said, they do everything they can to actually prevent real solutions from happening. There are things we could do. If we just admit, let's just say climate change is a real thing. The climate's changing. It's getting warmer and and it's going to create problems uh, in the future. You could even say it's created some problems uh, right now. Which is dangerous to go down that road because then you blame every problem on the climate change, uh, of course. Well, they are the kind of people who go against every single thing that could actually help people like adapting to the world that we're going to live in. Uh, it's that we have to, you have to collapse society to prevent society from collapsing. That's basically their idea. And uh, so these are some of my least favorite people in the whole world. That's dumb bleep number five, Roger Halam. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We're coming up on the holiday season and Honestly, I used to dread this part of the year. Seriously, did. Uh, It can be so stressful trying to find gifts, coordinate schedules. You guys ever try to schedule with your family during the holidays? Uh, Plus, to me, it's always marked the passing of yet another year. And when I say that out loud, I can't believe that I used to look at that as a bad thing, the passing of another year. Not everyone gets that. But adding something new and positive can counteract some of those feelings. Therapy can be a bright spot amid all the stress, just like it was for me when I tried it. That's right, doing therapy worked for me, and it can work for you too. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. 
Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Find your bright spot this season with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash GML today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash G-M-L. Number six, we talked about this one yesterday, maybe? Day before that? It was on White Pill Wednesday. That's what it was. Um, so ESG, which we're no fan of, uh, apparently, the amount of money in ESG investments has collapsed by it's decreased by five trillion in stock value over the last couple of years. And uh, this person, Af- these people, Afru, A F R U, uh, just a great publication that I recommend everyone go and read. Okay, and we we thank them for the content that they are now providing to the show on a weekly basis. Uh, here's what they thought about it. Anti-woke economic terrorists have now wiped out $5 trillion in stock value. And so if you don't like the things that uh, that money is going toward, first off, you're a terrorist. You can't decide where your money goes. States can't decide that they're not going to invest their pension funds in things that, that um, aren't doing great for people's money. You know, the point is, when you invest your money, is it's got to go up in value. Like That's what you want to do. You know, especially you got pension funds with like guaranteed returns for people, guaranteed payouts for people. You need to earn some money on them. And so you want to invest those in companies that are going to do really well and not just companies that say really nice things or say all of the politically correct things these days. Here's a little snippet from the article. The repercussions of the anti-ESG downturn haven't been felt uniformly. Investors of color bear disproportionately heavy burden as they are more likely than white folks to invest in companies aligned with ethical and sustainable practices. That's one of the things that we know about investors of color is that they invest more ethically, you know, than the, than the white man. These are, after all, the companies that are also willing to affirm that non-white lives matter. Of course, the, the non-ethical companies, they only say that white lives matter. And then you got your ethical companies and they say that people who aren't white, that their lives matter. Uh, While anti-ESG sentiment erodes financial portfolios of color, or POC as we call it, it also undermines our collective efforts to promote positive change through responsible investing. And the broader implications suggest ever-widening gap in wealth and opportunity. Losses to portfolios of color only exacerbate existing disparities. I got an idea. How about everyone invests their money towards things that are going to get the best returns? And then we won't have to worry about these wealth disparities for the uh, POC, the uh, the portfolios of color. Let's just invest in things that are going to give good returns and businesses that are going to provide best the best services to people. I don't know. That's a crazy idea. I, don't, I should start doing that. Let's be clear about where to put the blame. Conservative lawmakers, driven by an irrational culture of anti-woke hysteria, have actively taken measures to resist the incorporation of ESG principles in the business and investing. This opposition is manifested in legislative efforts across multiple states, from Florida to Utah, where lawmakers are pushing back against the injection of ethics into the financial sector. Um, That's not really what the financial sector is for. And one of the most ethical things you can do is provide products and services to people that they want to voluntarily pay for. That's like the most ethical thing. And the people who do that the best, I believe, are going to be the ones that are also going to make the most money for their investors. So let's all focus our money towards that. That's number six. How about number seven? Taylor Swift gets person of the year. That's not what the dumb bleep is. She's Times, 
woman of the year, person of the year, Taylor Swift. That's fine. That's a that's a fine choice, you know. Um, but this person, Syra Rao, had an interesting take on this. The white American woman billionaire who could end the genocide of Palestinians with one IG post, Instagram post, is time person of the year. White nonsense, white violence, white love of black and brown genocide. It must... I. I try to put myself in the place of people who go through life and like that's their first response to something, seeing Taylor Swift be in person of the year. You could say, hey, look, this woman, she's a billionaire. She uh, sang the best songs. She got the most fans. She put out a movie. It was a really big deal. Um, is it racist? I don't know if it's racist. I guess you could ask whether or not it's racist and whether or not you replace the word white with something that isn't white i don't know like black and just said the imagine it was someone else and you're like oh this black woman black nonsense black violence black love of white genocide or something like that seems like that'd be kind of a racist post um the other thing is i don't think that i understand that taylor swift and the swifties have a lot of power Right, there's a lot of people out there, and I do believe she's creating her Swifty army, and she's going to try and get out the vote in 2024. I think that's going to be a thing, of course. Um, I don't think though that she could end the war between Israel and Hamas with one Instagram post. I'm pretty sure if she could, she'd probably do it. But I don't think she has that much power. You might be overstating her whiteness. She might not be as white as you think she is. So, all right. Let's, uh, I mean, she'd get a lot of people, of course, to, to protest or whatever. Uh, but I don't, I just don't think she has that kind of pool. All right. That is, uh, oh, by the way, there's a community notes on this. Um, historically, conflicts and wars have not ended due to Instagram posts. I like the, uh, I like the community notes. Therefore, it's extremely unlikely that an Instagram post made by Taylor Swift will end the war in Gaza. <laughs> That's how popular the post was. It, uh, it had to get a community note saying, actually, there's no historical evidence that an Instagram post could end this war that's been going on for like 2,000 years. <laughs> so it's pretty good. Okay, number eight. We talked about this yesterday with some of the uh, debate recap, but this is Nikki Haley sciencing the hell out of science uh, when it comes to what happens after you watch TikTok for 30 minutes. And if you do it for 30 minutes every day, uh, bad things happen, you know, and she's going to science this because she saw a study with a chart. And she knows exactly what it meant for sure. We really do need to ban TikTok once and for all. And let me tell you why. For every 30 minutes that someone watches TikTok every day, they become 17% more anti-Semitic, more pro-Hamas based on doing that. We now know that 50% of adults 18 to 25 think that Hamas was warranted in what they did with Israel. That's a problem. We really. All right, for, th for every 30 minutes, 
that someone watches TikTok every day, they become 17% more anti-Semitic. That is not what the study said at all. It showed people who spend at least 30 minutes a day on different platforms, and it said that the people on TikTok were 17% more likely to hold anti-Semitic slash anti-Israel or anti-Zionist views, which they conflate all of those things together, and we'll talk about that here in a second. Uh, That's not what the study said at all. It also didn't say that that would compound on top of it, like if you watched it for 30 minutes every day, or if you just kept watching TikTok, that you would just grow 17% more anti-Semitic with more time that you spent on TikTok. More than likely, What it is, when you boil it all the way down, is that there's a much younger audience on TikTok. And so when you look and you you say, well, the people on TikTok, people spending 30 minutes a day on either Instagram or X or TikTok, they're 17% more likely to be uh, hold some anti-Semitic or anti-Israel views. It's probably because there's a lot younger audience on TikTok. And I, I I would actually say that's, most of it more than more than likely and not even just videos that they that they ran ac- ran across i made a nice little chart for this and i i made it even better than i had it yesterday but this is hours spent on tiktok and you could say 30 minutes per day so maybe it's going to take you uh, maybe it's going to take you a half a month or a month or whatever to get here but this is a chart and it starts with you're not anti-semitic of course you got to be at least 1% for this effect to take hold if you're 0% and you spend time on TikTok, then it's not going to affect you because you can't grow 17% more than zero. That's just not going to happen. Okay, that's undefined. And so you start off down here with Ben Shapiro. That's where you get around zero to maybe 1%. He hates Jews who criticize Israel. So we can start him around 1%, something like that. And as you spend more and more time on TikTok, what you'll see is that you eventually get up to Hitler this is about after you've spent 14 hours on uh, on TikTok. You get up to around Hitler, uh, who I've placed around 95% anti-Semitic. And if you, if you stay on TikTok for just a little bit longer, here's how fast this affects. The compound interest is one of the wonders of the world. And uh, you keep going to 16 hours spent on TikTok, and you're 150% anti-Semitic, just like Elon Musk. And if you stay on there for a little bit longer... Uh, like 17 hours, you get all the way up to Donald Trump. And that's, that's, what it's, that's what's at stake right here, folks. You know, it's science. It's a study, a de- definitely a great study uh, that is not flawed in any of the ways they collect data whatsoever. So that's dumb bleep number eight, Nikki Haley. Number nine goes to this anti-Semitism thing that's happening right now. What's going on with Thomas Massey? This is a article from Breitbart. So right, right, right wing. They're just really just a pro-Trump. It's like a Donald Trump news organization, I think. Representative Thomas Massey, here's the headline. Thomas Massey posts anti-Semitic meme claiming Congress chooses Zionism over American patriotism. Now, first off, that's not even what the meme really claimed. Here's the meme from Thomas Massey, the meme heard around the elite establishment world. Uh, The White House responded to this. Chuck Schumer responded to this. People are very upset about a sitting member of Congress posting something so 
crazy. Just makes no sense at all. Uh, the first thing, <clears throat> it's the Drake, uh, Drake meme, I think. Um, Congress these days, holding up, no, no. And uh, that's to American patriotism. And it says Congress these days, yeah, to uh, Zionism. Now, to me, that's not even, <clears throat> it doesn't even have to be critiquing Zionism or people that are pro-Israel, really. You could first look at that as a critique of Congress who doesn't like American patriotism. Many people in Congress don't even like the founding principles of America. They don't even like individualism. They don't even like free speech. They don't like the Second Amendment. They don't like the Fourth Amendment. They don't like the Tenth Amendment. They don't like American patriotism, Congress. And so, first off, that's how you're critiquing Congress. They don't care about that. But what they do care a lot about is... Zionism and this political movement to move the Jews over to Israel to settle that land uh, for Israel. More to come on Liberty at Night. It's Dumb Leap of the Week. We got one more segment. Let's do it. Liberty at Night with Nate and Charlie on the Free Talk Live Network. Coming at you from Nashville, Tennessee. Of course, it's just been me all night because uh, Charlie's been on vacation in the Bahamas. So he just got me. Normally, there's two of us uh, right now. Just one. We've been doing Dumb Bleep of the Week. That's where we vote for the dumbest thing that happened in politics. The live group makes submissions. That's the Fed Haters Club. Join gmail.com. They send in submissions. Uh, we get some submissions on X, and then I throw a bunch in, too. We've been talking about this one with Thomas Massey. And this meme that he posted that everyone is calling anti-Semitic, which I think is completely ridiculous. We are overusing this term. And uh, before I give it all away, we're going to talk about that. In the uh, Breitbart article, the meme, which borrows images from the video for Hotline Bling by Drake, is commonly used to mock hypocrisy. The idea that Zionism and American patriotism are contradictory is a common theme on the anti-Semitic far right. Now, they're not even really saying that those are contradictory. What they're saying is that the American Congress says no to American patriotism, but clearly are down with Zionism. It it doesn't even have to say that they're contradictory ideas. It means that the people in Congress are hypocrites, that they care more about Zionism and Israel than they do about America. That's what it's saying. Uh, Zionism is the belief that the Jewish people have the right to a state in their historic and spiritual homeland of Israel since the late 19th century. Anti-Semites have used the idea of Zion to suggest Jewish control and manipulation of world governments. That's definitely what Thomas Massey is doing. That, for example, is the theme of no one cares about this. American leaders throughout history have supported the idea of a Jewish state. Going back to President John Adams, who was an ardent restorationist, believing that a Jewish republic should emerge in the Middle East. Massey posted the meme as the House was holding hearings about anti-Semitism on college campuses, which has flared since the Palestinian terror group Hamas carried out a devastating terror attack against Israel on October, you know, the thing. Massey has been under attack from pro-Israel groups after voting against funding for Israel, ostensibly on budgetary and foreign policy grounds. He appears to have taken argument to a completely different place this argument to a completely different place with this anti-Semitic post. And here's here's the problem. Well, let's go through a little bit more. Chuck Schumer responded to this and said, Representative Massey, you're a sitting member of Congress. This is anti-Semitic. Disgusting. 
dangerous, insubordinate, and churlish. And exactly the type of thing I was talking about in my Senate address. Take this down. Tear down this post. Laura Loomer, who was most known for debating Dave Smith on Israel and Palestine a few weeks ago, because that's literally like the only thing that I know about her. We are, uh, she says, uh, Representative Thomas Massey is an anti-Semite. We are dealing with rising threats of pro-Hamas and pro-Hezbollah terrorist activity in America, and he's basically saying you can't be an American patriot and also be a Zionist. No, he's not basically saying. He's saying that the people in Congress are not American patriots. That's that you can't just decide he's saying something else. The threats Israel's facing are very much our threats too. No, they're not. Our border is wide open and it's been documented that Hamas and Hezbollah are coming across our border. Our cities across America are being terrorized by Palestinian jihadists. Our cities, uh, we said that. I have never liked Thomas Massey. He voted with the Hamas caucus to not fund the Iron Dome. <clears throat> Do you think that's because he hates Israel? Or because he doesn't like stealing money from the American people and spending it on things when we don't have any money. That could be an idea. I don't know. In other words, Thomas Massey is in favor of Hamas rockets killing innocent Israelis. You see, if you don't vote to steal money from the American people against their will and give it to another country, that means you're in favor of people attacking another country that isn't America. I, that math maths up right there better than any math has ever mathed in the history. Such a nasty thing for him to post while American citizens are still being held hostage in Israel. Well, that's who he definitely doesn't care about. Thomas Massey is a total P-O-S. Not going to say the word so I don't have to go back and edit it later on, but you know what P stands for, and the uh, and the S. Okay, so this thing about anti-Semitism, it's getting, it's, this is one of these things that really frustrates me, and it actually, it makes me a little bit pessimistic, and a little bit more cynical, a little bit more jaded, <clears throat> because what I found, and uh, which we've, we've always kind of known, but <sighs> what I found is that the right is really no different from the left. The left has all these things that they say. They call people racist. They call people white supremacist. They use the word fascist all the time. They use the word Nazi all the time. And they have used those words for so many things that they have completely devalued the usage of those words. Used to, maybe you called someone a white supremacist and it's because they were at a KKK rally. They were trying to stop a black person from using the water fountain or something like that. These days, you call them a white supremacist because they made like a 15% profit on their investment or something like that. I don't know. And like that makes you a white supremacist. And you call someone a fascist because they want to defund the FBI or something like that. Like that makes you a fascist, that you want to defund the bureaucracy of the state. <laughs> you know, they've devalued the usage of these words. And it's actually a slap in the face to all the people that are victims of real white supremacy or racism or have dealt with actual Nazis or who have been victims of actual anti-Semitism. People who actually hate the Jews for being Jews, not just because they hate the country, the state of Israel, not just because they hate the political ideology that is Zionism, 
but that they hate Jews for being Jews. And when you just call everyone an anti-Semite, now all of a sudden we have another word that means nothing. Because now when someone gets called an anti-Semite, you see, maybe used to, and I know this word has really always been thrown around, but we, I wasn't paying as much attention to it. Um, used to, you throw it around and be like, oh, well, I don't like it when people hate Jews for being Jews. That's dumb. I don't like that. But now if it's like, oh, they don't want to, they don't want to quell people's speech. They don't like hates. They don't want to condemn uh, people talking about the state of Israel in a negative way. Well, they're an anti semite Well, now I can't really pay attention to, to anything when someone calls someone an anti-Semite because it doesn't mean anything anymore. You destroy the language with that and you, you make it to where there's no words to actually call out bad things when they happen. And it's, all, it's just sad that the right really has no more principles than the left does. And, and I guess we've known that for a long time, but it is so evident right now when it comes to free speech and hate speech and criticizing governments now that we've brought Israel into the picture that they don't actually have any principles on these things. They really don't. It's just about things that they either like or don't like or care about or don't care about. And that's really it. And it just comes down to them caring about free speech when it's people that are critiquing them. That's it. Not when people are critiquing things that they care about. So that's, um, I'm sure that this, I know it's the way that it always has been. Uh, to me, it just hasn't been as evident as it is right now. Uh, but this is all dumb bleep number nine. Uh, Thomas Massey, anti-Semite, you know the thing. How about number 10? Oh, I lost my numbers here. Elizabeth Warren, she hasn't been on here in a minute. Uh, we got a video here of her talking on CNBC, and she's talking about crypto. And of course, she's worried. She's very worried because um, she wants to keep people safe, and she's found this thing that doesn't keep people safe, that actually makes the world more dangerous for all of us, and that is people having alternatives to the U.S. dollar. Here we go. There's a new threat out there. It's crypto, and it is being used for terrorist financing. It is being used for drug trafficking. North Korea is using it to pay for about half of its nuclear weapons program. We can't allow that to continue. Uh, Senator, let me ask you this. We had a guest uh, on earlier in the broadcast who I would argue is a, a Bitcoin um, proponent, if you will. And he said, look, J.P. Morgan just paid $5 billion uh, in fines uh, over anti-money laundering and, and, and other uh, activities uh, that, that the government uh, thought were, were either illegal or uh, illicit, if you will. And how should we think about Bitcoin as it relates to U.S. dollar cash and how, and how money gets, gets moved around? Well, I, I'm afraid I don't quite understand the argument. If, if the point is that we need tighter money laundering rules or better enforcement uh, for all of the banks, fine, let's make the case, let's go do it. But that's not an excuse for saying in the meantime, uh, terrorists can use Bitcoin in order to finance their operations, in order to raise money around. The you see, she's worried that these terrorists are going to be able to get money via Bitcoin. She prefers it when terrorists just get pallets full of U.S. dollars. 
that they can go and get their guns. Or, in fact, why don't we cut out the transaction and we just give them the guns and the bombs directly? You know, we don't need to have any money changing hands here because that gets really messy. Why don't you, instead of letting them do things with crypto, we want to be the ones that are controlling their supply and be the ones that are purchasing the guns from the manufacturers who's then, who are then donating to our campaigns and then we'll just give it directly to them. Uh, as if we haven't had an issue with money laundering or terrorist financing or North Korea doing things before crypto ever existed. So she's making up all of these arguments simply because people like her and people in Washington are very worried about one thing, and that's losing the power that controlling the money supply gives them. They can't do any of the stuff that they do if we find an alternative to the U.S. dollar. And that is why she's scared. She's going to make up any kind of reason she can to keep you safe. You know, this is dangerous for you. The world's a dangerous place. We need to control the money. But that's not what it is. What scares her is losing control over the people. That's what scares her, Jerome Powell, Joe Biden on days where he remembers which way is up and stuff like that. Okay, don't listen to any of the other reasons. Uh, Let's go on to, that was number 10, I believe. Let's go to number 11. This one's called Motive Unknown. This is a a post from Syracuse.com. Syracuse.com, a fine publication, one of my favorites. Shots fired outside of a Jewish temple in Albany. Shooter's motive, unknown. Oh, retweet. Shots fired outside of a temple in Albany. I don't know why, but I'm not going to read the article. That's... I wouldn't want to do that. But the motive, according to Syracuse.com, motive is clearly unknown. Except for if you go to the first paragraph of the article. Like, you click on that, and then you go to the first paragraph. A man fired a shotgun twice outside of a Jewish temple in upstate New York hours before the start of Hanukkah on Thursday. And then he said, free Palestine, as he was taken into custody. Police said no one was injured. The episode in the state capital of Albany took place amid rising fears of anti-Semitism worldwide, of course, from people like Thomas Massey posting that meme, and fallout from Israel's intensifying war in Gaza, which faces heightened criticism for the mounting Palestinian death toll. So just a real quick one here. How do you go from the, the Twitter post, the X post, that says, shooter's motive is unknown, and the first paragraph says that the guy fired the shots and then yelled free Palestine. I just can't I just can't figure out why he did this. I have no idea what he's trying to do, guys. We don't know what his political ideology is. We don't know why he chose this location or why he fired those shots in the air. There's just no way of knowing at all. Uh, we'll try and get to the bottom of this. So make sure you follow Syracuse.com for more. All right, that's number 11. Here's number 12. This is a post I saw from... Um, Spike, uh, Spike Cohen today. And so I'm going to, I'm basically just going to read his Twitter post because the story is ridiculous. And I'm going to put a link to the Twitter post in the show notes for today's show. And what I recommend, uh, if you, if you don't have a whole lot of time is that you go and, and repost, retweet this post because it's got a lot of retweets right now and, uh, it's got a lot of views and Spike 
with his organization, You Are the Power, has been doing some really great things. And this cause is, uh, is, is crazy. So I'm just going to read his post on this and you decide if it's dumb. So meet the Hernandez family. You can see the picture of the family right here. That's Matt and Tucky. So Matt and Tucky is the mom smiling with their beautiful young daughters. Over the past few months, the Georgia state government has ripped this family apart because one of their daughters has a medical condition that the court refuses to acknowledge. This all started when Matt and Tucky noticed some swelling in the lower legs of Emma, their infant daughter. They took her to a pediatrician who did some blood work and referred them to the ER. After an x-ray of her legs, the hospital's child abuse physician reported possible child abuse, despite the fact that the blood work results indicate a genetic disorder as the reason for her injuries. So they do blood work. They indicate a possible genetic disorder for the reason that she has this, but there's a child abuse physician that is reporting possible child abuse here. GADFCS authorities seized Emma and placed her with her aunt and uncle. Let me make sure I didn't skip anything. Yeah. Two weeks later, a caseworker visited the Hernandez home and determined that their older daughter, Arya, is obviously happy and well cared for. The next day, Tucky was arrested for battery and cruelty to children. It's the mom. Matt, the dad, is not allowed to communicate with the mom, Tucky, and Tucky is not allowed to communicate with Matt or their daughters. While in the aunt and uncle's care, Emma developed a rash on her feet. That's the infant daughter. The state took Emma from them and sent her to the hospital where she was put on a feeding tube and given other treatments without any of the family's knowledge or consent. Emma and Arya were then placed with a foster parent. At their first visitation, Matt noted that both Emma and Arya had signs of neglect, including cold, mottled skin, and discoloration on one of Emma's legs. The foster parent dismissed his concerns, and DFCS had no interest in hearing them either. After months of fighting to get copies of Emma's medical records, including from when he first took her to the ER, DFCS finally gave them to him. Two months later, at their first court hearing, medical experts testified that Emma has either a neonatal, neonatal rickets or osteogenesis imperfecta, brittle bone disease, uh, both of which are medical disorders which cause the types of injuries she has and that there is no sign of physical abuse. So medical experts testified in court. The judge refused to admit the medical expert's testimony, choosing instead to rely on the hospital's child abuse physician, who brought no paperwork and did not appear to understand these disorders. While this hearing's going on, Emma and Arya are transported to a visitation center to meet with Matt. But Matt's in court and obviously couldn't be in two places at once. The state either messed up their visitation schedule or intentionally scheduled it so he wouldn't be there. Aria was devastated. With each visit, Matt sees Aria become more and more withdrawn and depressed, and Emma become more injured and sickly. During one of the visits, when the caseworker came into the room, Aria got scared and ran behind Matt. The caseworker accuses Aria of being racist and smiles throughout the interaction, clearly enjoying the fear she is causing. So she was scared of the caseworker who took her away from her parents, and that is because this child, this little child, is racist. And just last week, Matt found out that his visitations are being cut in half. This is just last week. And they are moving Emma and Aria to a new foster family instead of back to their aunt and uncle. This case was brought to our attention by the Williams family, who is now 
in temporary custody of Emma and Arya when their foster mother went on vacation. After seeing how much these girls want to go home, the Williams began to investigate and discovered the horrific tragedy that the state is putting the Hernandez family through. Despite their own policies and despite the fact that the caseworker's report states that reunification is the goal, the state of Georgia has refused to acknowledge Emma's medical condition, choosing instead to assume that she's being abused and continues to prosecute Tucky and persecute the entire family. We hope that these officials would do the right thing, but they seem to be hell-bent on destroying the Hernandez family. We are going to reunite this family, and here's how you can help. So we put uh, in this post, I'm going to put a link to this post in the show notes so you can find it. He's asking that you email the people, so he lists their email addresses, and to be respectful when you email them. He says, don't give these people a chance to act like victims. You know how much government officials love to make it about them. Don't give them that opportunity. And he says, be sure to repost this. First off, uh, Spike Cohen is freaking amazing. Uh, I've always loved that guy. I get inspired every single time I hear him talk. Uh, every episode that we've had him on the show is amazing. And uh, this story is absolutely disgusting. Um, the state of Georgia and the people working in the Child Protective Services, whatever they call it there, should be absolutely ashamed of themselves. Other people who work for Child Protective Services around the country, or if you have, I, listen, I have family that, that work in Child Protective Services uh, for states, okay? They're not all bad people, and the good people should stand up and say, this is wrong. Uh, there's clear evidence of a medical condition here. And what's happened now, this is what happens. The state makes a decision, they pick a lane, and they go down this lane, and they say, okay, well, we think there's possible child abuse, we're going to take the family away. It doesn't matter now whether or not you can prove them wrong. What matters is that they cannot look like they did something wrong. And they are going to do every single thing they can to never look like they did something wrong. And just as we've explained several times in the past, people who are in power like this, yeah, they want to have a power trip, all that. But one of the things that they cannot allow you to do is see that they can do things wrong. Because if they can do things wrong, then that means you can question them anytime they do something because there's a potential they could be wrong. And they're not going to admit that. And so they will literally risk ripping this family apart and keeping these children in the foster care system just so they don't have to admit that they were wrong. The judge should be absolutely embarrassed and disgusted with himself. The people who are working in Child Protective Services are absolutely disgusting in this case as well. And I hope that all of you will find the link to this uh, that's going to be in the show notes. And in fact, just while I'm thinking about it right now, I'm going to find this post, going to get this link. I'm going to post it right here to the Fed Haters Club so you guys get that link right there. Uh, so you can go and... Um, Retweet that. It's got, it's it's getting good traction for sure. And uh, Spike's really good at telling these stories. Uh, right now, this has 2.6 thousand retweets. It's got 405 thousand views. And that's on a post that has these people's email addresses listed on it. So you can send them an email, you can give them a phone call, or you can at least retweet this and someone else uh, maybe is going to help out with this cause uh, as well. And, you know, not something we normally do, but I, uh, I'd, I'd recommend joining up with your the power and uh, you know giving them. I think it's like 
five bucks a month or something is low, the lowest tier, something like that. Um, they're doing really good. They're doing really good work over there. So that is, uh, that's dumb bleep of the week. Let's run back through them. Number one, inflation is your fault. Number two, Randy Weingarten is, uh, of course, focusing on in-person learning as she always has done. Number three, those different gun control posts. Number four, uh, the public says that's the girl with the, uh, the, uh, the rice and the budgeting. Number five, you're going to stop eating meat or you're going to stop eating meat. Number six, the uh, economic terrorists because of the ESG thing. Number seven, this really weird, racist, bizarre Taylor Swift post about how she could end the war with one Instagram post. I think you're overestimating the whiteness. Okay. Uh, number eight, Nikki Haley and the uh, TikTok study. Number nine, anti-Semitism and the uh, Thomas Massey situation and just in general. Uh, number 10, Elizabeth Warren and crypto. Number 11, motive unknown. And number 12, child protective services and this, uh, this story from the great Spike Cohen. Go to the Dumb Leap of the Week voting channel and get your Mother trucking votes in real quick while I tell you to go to joingmail.com, join the Fed Haters Club. I'm waiting on people to vote on these things right now. And let's see who the winner is going to be going once, going twice, and sold to Child Protective Services and Dumb Bleep number 12, the post from Spike Cohen, and you are the power. That does it for us over at Liberty at Night on the Free Talk Live Network. That's Dumb Bleep of the Week. Thank you for everyone uh, hanging out and voting with us, and we'll see you again next week. If you want to move to the free state and you're looking for some real estate, well, I know a guy who's really great. It's the Realtor Mark Warden. Now you can learn more about the awesome things happening here in New Hampshire in our march toward liberty in our lifetime. Our friends at Porcupine Real Estate are hosting a series of webinars to educate you on the expanded freedoms enjoyed by New Hampshire citizens. Reserve your seat today at move.freetalklive.com. Topics include gun freedom, medical freedom, and political freedom victories. They also have a couple on best practices for moving to the free state and finding housing. These webinars are super helpful and free to attend once you've registered at move.freetalklive.com. Visit their YouTube channel, Porcupine Real Estate, for videos from past presentations and sign up for upcoming webinars for free at move.freetalklive.com. Porcupineralestate.com